Geordie here reading the Guardian's left-wing newspaper out of Britain, and it's got a terrific headline this morning. All right, as Gaza death toll mounts, Israelis look in vain for any sign of victory. And I don't know about you, that, that really resonates with me, not just as a strong supporter of the Jewish state, someone who's concerned about what happens in Israel, but as someone who lives and loves, all right? I've been particularly susceptible for just dramatic victories. Like, all right, I'm struggling in life and just like looking, looking for signs of victory. Am I winning? A- am I winning? And I-, I think with much of life, as in the situation that Israel finds itself in Gaza, I don't think there's going to be any dramatic sign of victory. I don't think there's going to be any victory. All you can do is survive. And so Israel is trying to survive and taking out an enemy that uh, threatens its southern border. I mean, Hamas is not, upon reflection, it's not an existential threat to the Jewish state. All right. Hamas does not have the capability of destroying the state of Israel, but they can make life miserable enough so that hundreds of thousands of Israelis have to move from southern Israel. So Israel's threatened by Hezbollah in the north, Hamas in the south, by Iran, by all these other hostile nations that surround it. And I don't think there's any possibility of a resounding victory for Israel that just settles these questions, right? Israel is located in a part of the world where there's going to be a lot of trouble, right? They are surrounded by enemies. I don't think there's going to be any conclusive victory, right? The best Israel can do is is to survive. So holy smoke, says the, the chat, what happened to your hair? Well, it was the end of that Dallas Cowboys versus Detroit Lions game last night. I mean, the Cowboys are hanging on by one point. Detroit Lions have three opportunities to cash in a two-point conversion right from, from the goal line. And uh, Dallas manages to hang on for a very narrow victory. But, my God, by the time it was all over, my hair had fallen out. It was just it was right there at the edge. Man, can't can't handle too much of that. So. I think often you just survival itself has to be counted as a victory, right? We're not going to vanquish our foes, generally speaking. Yeah, in World War II, England, the United States, all right, they they vanquished Nazi Germany. And in the Cold War, the United States and the West ended up vanquishing the Soviet Union. But given Israel's location, surrounded by hostile nations, I don't think there's any ultimate lasting peaceful solution for the conflict between the Jewish state and its neighbors, unless one side utterly destroys the other. So I think the best Israel could do is to survive. And I think this is how life is for most of us, right? We rarely experience ultimate victory over our foes. I I know when I converted to Judaism in 1993, a part of me thought, oh, I have won. I've kind of got rid of this unwanted self. I'm going to dissolve myself in this great new way of living. But I hadn't won, right? I'd just begun a different phase of my life. And all the problems that I had with me prior to my conversion, I took with me into my conversion. So after a few years, my idealistic conceptions of Judaism melted away. And after putting it off as long as I could, I recognized that I was the problem. There was nothing outside of me that was going to rescue me. And then then the real work began, starting probably 1998. I began going to uh, psychotherapy, taking two therapy sessions back to back All right, on Fridays. So I had about 10 years of therapy. I think that helped. Started Alexander Technique lessons in 2008, so a lifetime of bad posture and muscle pain started to fade away. 
in March of 2009, as I began my daily Alexander Technique teacher training, my, I was able to quit my daily intake of lithium, clonidine, and clonopam. That helped. I began 12-step programs in 2011, developed some emotional sobriety. I began taking modafinil regularly in 2013, experienced some significant cognitive benefit, a little help with my ADHD from that. Uh, I began taking positional release lessons in December 2016, so I developed increased physical ease and freedom from positional release. Then I bought an activator, right, and, and a guidebook in 2017, January 2017, let go of a lot of expensive physical therapy that had been draining thousands of dollars from my budget. So that was a small victory. Again, taking beef organ capsules in June 2021, a lifetime of health problems disappeared within two weeks. That was a significant victory. Got diagnosed with ADHD in October 2023, and a lifetime of ADHD problems began to melt away with medication. So we can have some some small victories, but uh, you know these giant dramatic victories over a foe, right? Uh, they they are less likely, right? And so if one wants to get rid of misery and, and hoping for some you know dramatic victory victory that just transports one out, out of what, a very difficult situation. It usually doesn't happen that way. I've been listening to a terrific interview by Richard Hanania talking with Amy Wax. I'm you know, deeply disappointed that he seems to accept, you know, racist ideas. And then yours is like the opposite, <laughs> right. um, which is like, I don't talk, I, I don't talk about race realism. I do cite you for a lot of the IQ stuff. I, he's right that I don't run away from it. Um, but the question that you raise, right. And it's a, it's a good question is like, how much do you need to get into the sources? <clears throat> Of group differences. Um, and your view is, you know, we've talked about this before. Your view is you have to get into it. And my, my view is, I don't know. Like, I don't know if you need to because people, you know, it, it's, it, do we need that much honesty? Like do, in the world of ideas, do, do honest arguments win or is it just sort of rhetorical ploys mm -hmm. that win, right? Well, um, did you see the Aporia debate? There was a, uh, Bo Weingard does, sets up these kind of debates uh, on his Aporia website. And he did one on this question of can we just avoid talking about group differences? It's so upsetting and kind of rude and yeah. uh, it's very divisive and, you know, really undermines social harmony. Well, well, who should talk about them is the, is the question, right? Like me and you could talk about it. The Poria could talk about it. I don't have any problem with that. I don't think everyone should. Uh, right. Uh, yes, but go ahead. Finish. With well, that. I mean, the question is what we mean about we, right? I, I, you know, in the corners of, of the Internet, people do talk about it quite openly with their own little coterie. Um, there are debates, the data is there, but when you get out into the real world, the wide world of, you know, social life among the elites or even ordinary average people. And then of course, you know, in academia, in the media, anything like the mainstream media in our institutions, uh, it's really a verboten topic. So I think when Bo Weingart is, yeah. is asking the question, should we talk about it more? He's asking, you know, do we need to be more open about it generally, uh, in school, in universities, in intellectual yeah. centers of debate, et cetera. Uh, and I think, and I've become convinced of this, um, that, and, and Nathan Kofnes, who's a very smart guy, uh, has in part been, you know, an agent in convincing. Yeah, Nathan Kofnes has played a, a huge role in the most important thinking on on the right, right, in, in the last five years. And so Nathan Kofnes has played a huge role here in Amy Wax's thinking. me of this, that wokeness really cannot be defeated until we do that. And I guess... The reason I think that is summarized by the phrase I use in my review of your, your very interesting book, which is it takes a theory to beat a theory. Uh, that's what the philosophers say. Um, if you ever go to a philosophy uh, seminar or whatever, it takes a theory to beat a theory, right? So you can criticize wokeness all you want, but until you have sort of an alternative explanation uh, account of why things are the way they are, 
you will slide down towards wokeness. And I think, let me just add one point here. And I made this point in my review of Charles Murray's book, Facing Reality, um, which is a, which actually faces up to these differences, but avoids speculating about where they come from. Um, I actually think that, you know, that these sources uh, have to be confronted once you implement uh, race blindness, meritocracy, all of these defaults that the anti-woke crowd wants to see, their ideal universe is going to be colorblind. It's going to be meritocratic. And I think you would sign on to that uh, from your book. But what will happen when we have a true meritocracy? What will happen when we have real colorblindness? Well, what will happen is there won't be hardly any blacks in positions demanding very high cognitive ability. And here I'm talking about, you know, 130 IQ plus. So we're talking about yeah. academic medicine, academic law, academia, generally, um, a lot of business positions, high tech positions, uh, anything kind of technical and scientific. It's going to be hard to get almost any blacks in those positions on a pure meritocracy. And you could say, nah, that's not true. But the actually, the IQ numbers are really stark. They are really, really stark. Yeah. Um, so how are we going to sell that to the public? How are you going to sell that to minorities? I mean, why are there no, you know, uh, black? Look, different, different groups have different gifts. Uh, African-Americans have made a disproportionate contribution to much of American culture. They have certainly more than held their own, for example, in literary contributions. They're among the most eloquent and charismatic uh, speakers that we have. There are a disproportionate number of our most uh, important actors and comedians and uh, people in pop culture. So it's not like they would disappear from American life. Oncology professors or whatever, cardiology professors or people in prestigious tech positions, why are there so few blacks at Google, et cetera? What's our explanation for that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that makes sense. But let me ask you this. So why, so we do see group disparities that we don't care about all the time. So we see Jews um, in positions of elite power and influence. How do we explain well, that? Well, I'm not sure, um, I'm we not sure we can Jews. say people don't care about that, but leaving well, that aside. Care. <laughs> yeah. Right. And well, if you bring it up, the answer is not, well, they just have higher IQs. That's not the mainstream answer. The mainstream answer is you are an anti-Semite and you're going to lead us to a new Holocaust, basically, if you start you know, talking about Jewish power. Right. We have black overrepresentation in sports. People generally uh, don't care. So it seems like we can it seems like it's socially constructed whether we care about these disparities or not. It doesn't seem like it's a uh, it's a uh, something in nature that we have to care about it. We could or we could ignore it. And 90 percent of disparities we just ignore. So I say we just ignore the rest and defame anyone who wants to who wants to, uh, you know, start pushing for a, a, a government because this is the, this is the median position of the American voter. They're not into behavioral genetics and they don't like racial preferences. seems to me people maybe are not, you know, it's not a philosophy seminar. People can hold things in their mind that are sort of contradictory, right? And so maybe you don't need this sort of honesty that you would need in a philosophy seminar. Maybe you just need regular politics and raising salience of some arguments and decreasing the salience of others. Well, I mean, I'm not going to disagree that it's quote unquote socially constructed in the sense that you can imagine another society that is much more accepting of group differences and hierarchy, right? But our society, for whatever reason, has evolved, Pain and this has been going on for a very long time, floor, and even de Tocqueville noted it, as I said in my review. The Peninsula is an ideal location to develop a spacious resettlement for the people of Gaza. Another Israeli paper reported that Bibi Netanyahu told party members he favored the voluntary migration of Gaza residents to other countries. Joining us now from Israel is Fox News correspondent Trey Yinks. So now critics, including in the Israeli press, are accusing the Netanyahu government of planning ethnic cleansing. Didn't Israel promise that all the displaced Gaza residents would be able to return to their homes? Yeah, Howie, exactly. That's exactly what the Israelis promised when they told Palestinians to move from the northern part of Gaza to the southern part of the Strip. 
And the people that are floating this idea of actually removing Palestinians from Gaza and putting them into the Sinai Peninsula have very nationalistic views on this war and also views that aren't going to be accepted objectively for a variety of reasons. When you first look at this idea, you're talking about moving Palestinians into Egyptian territory. The Egyptians said that's simply not going to happen, and they're not even willing to consider this as a temporary measure to relieve some of the pressure on the Palestinian civilians in the southern part of Gaza. The second point here has to do with the entire region, countries like Jordan, countries in the Gulf, including the Qataris. Those that have some interest in the conflict that's unfolding right now in Gaza have supported the Palestinians in pushing back against this idea. So it's not likely to happen even on a temporary basis. And those who are considered more moderate in the war cabinet, including Benny Gantz, Gadi Eisenkot, and others say this is not going to take place. And so you may see this from some of the more nationalist, far-right individuals in the Israeli political system. The reality on the ground is that it is not likely to happen. Well, I would just add that Israel at least tries to minimize civilian casualties, whereas Hamas's whole reason to exist is ethnic cleansing, is to kill as many Jews as possible and wipe Israel off the map. But uh, another uh, incident in a tough week for the Israelis, Israel has expressed regret for those two airstrikes that killed many Gaza civilians, saying it used the wrong weapons. Now, that was accidental, but doesn't it fuel the narrative that the IDF is not sh in any way showing the restraint that President Biden has been urging? It's very rare that the Israeli military comes out and apologizes for any strike, especially inside Gaza, 86 days into this conflict. The apology came on Thursday, and they were referencing the Al-Maghazi camp in the central part of the Gaza Strip. Now, we've talked about this before, but this specific incident led to the deaths, according to Palestinian media, of dozens of noncombatants, civilians, who were residing in the central part of Gaza when these strikes took place. Now, the Israelis say they were going after Hamas militants in this part of Gaza, but as a result, they killed many civilians. This is not the first time this has happened since the war began, and it certainly won't be the last. It does highlight the efforts by the Israelis to explain when they make a mistake, but it's not the first time they've made such a mistake inside Gaza. And while we can't independently confirm the numbers from the Palestinian Health Ministry, because it is run by Hamas of 20,000 dead inside Gaza, we know that thousands of civilians have been killed since this ground invasion began. And the majority of them are not Hamas militants. They are women and children and men who are sheltering in different parts of Gaza. Now, the main criticism here for the Israelis has to do with the location of these strikes. They've been telling civilians to move to the central and southern part of Gaza since the war began, and they're still striking this area. Howie. Well, it, the killing of all these civilians is tragic, but of course Hamas contributes a little bit by... Uh... So ethnic cleansing, it sounds absolutely horrible, frequently is absolutely horrible. Uh, sometimes, however, the conflicts of interest between groups are so intense that the only way to achieve peace is to have ethnic cleansing, or at least one has to face up to the reality that however horrible ethnic cleansing is, it's better than death, it's better than widespread murder. So I think part of the reason there was so much peace after World War II was all the ethnic cleansing. A lot of Germans who lived outside of Germany were pushed back into Germany. Now, this was done at a tremendous price, and over a million Germans died in the process uh, when there was the establishment of the state of Pakistan, the establishment of the nation state of Bangladesh, all right, there was tremendous ethnic cleansing as Muslims and Hindus sorted themselves out into different areas and hundreds of thousands of people died 
On the other hand, people who live among people like themselves, right, are going to have higher social trust and that community is going to enjoy more social cohesion. Sometimes when conflicts of interest between two groups are particularly intense and there's no solution, right, that's what usually leads to mass killing. So if you put me against the wall and say, you know, 40, choose between being ethnically cleansed and being murdered, right, I would choose to be ethnically cleansed, right? I would rather have to move than be killed. I, I think that's just common sense. Wouldn't, wouldn't most people prefer to move than to be killed? Now, Israel absolutely wants to ethnically cleanse Palestinians. The state of Israel, all right, was established in large part through ethnic cleansing, right? The Israelis tried to drive all the Arabs and the Muslims out of the new Jewish state of Israel. They were prevented from doing it fully by Western media outcry and attention and Western governments saying, no, stop. But the, the intent of, of the, the Jewish founders of the modern state of Israel was to drive out the Arabs, right? They, they took cues from probably from the strategies that Joseph Stalin used to ethnically cleanse Germans. And uh, Stalin you know, pushed Germans out of Eastern Europe and, and Russia and pushed them back into Germany at the cost of over a million German lives. And I think the founders of the modern state of Israel were profoundly influenced by many of Stalin's tactics and saw that that's a, a good way forward. And so contrary to Zionist propaganda, the, the founders of the modern state of Israel recognized that a Jewish state would be stronger the higher the proportion that was Jewish as opposed to including hundreds of thousands of people who hate you and who are not Jewish, don't identify with, with a Jewish state, and in fact hate a Jewish state. So, yeah, I have no doubt that uh, Israelis you know, would love, that the leaders of Israel would love to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians out of the West Bank and out of Gaza. Uh, our society is obsessed with issues of equality. Now, of course, we have inequality all over the place, so that produces all sorts of cognitive di dissonance. But when it comes to group inequality, you know, this is a third rail. And I think when it, with respect to black specifically or black and brown people, um, you know, for a very long time, there has been this idea abroad that they are, quote unquote, less smart. And so people are very, very sensitive to that. They uh, are very reluctant to talk about that. They're very reluctant to face up to it. And you're it's moralized. You're, you are considered a bad person if you notice these facts. Now, you know, with Jews, quite frankly, Richard, if you go out there into the real world and talk to people about Jews, they will say, yeah, Jews are smart. Jews are smarter than, than yeah. other people. That's, that's something that people have been saying about Jews forever. You know, um, there's, the evidence is all over the place. It's only when you get up to the elites that it's, you know, somehow impolite or suspicious to talk about how Jews are smarter and frankly born smarter, right? Uh, that's considered an outrageous thing to say. Well, you know, anybody who doesn't think that is diluted, quite frankly, in my humble opinion. Uh, but then to say another group is not as smart, that just seems really so much worse, okay? Uh, yeah. but, but once again... Okay, looking at the chat, Luke Croft says, Arab-Israeli citizens are surprisingly non-radical, especially in reaction to what's happening in Gaza. I think including Arabs in an inclusive Israeli state is the only way to peace. Uh, the chat says, Joseph Stalin was way more alpha than the Zionists. Luke Croft says, this is all just horrible nationalism. Both the Palestinians and the Israelis should leave behind their tribalism. And the chat says, tribalism is genetic. It's part of human nature. It can't be left behind. Well, it can be suppressed or it can be incentivized to diminish, but it certainly can't be 
eliminate it, so it will always be there in the background. Luke Croft says, it's being left behind in America. The more intelligent and educated you are, the less tribalistic you are. Tribalism is increasingly for uneducated losers. Well, you can be incentivized away from tribalism, and you can incentivize people to identify by, by I don't know, political orientation or by profession. Right, so if you're a surgeon, you probably feel most comfortable around other surgeons. If you're an attorney, you probably feel most comfortable around other attorneys. So there are various ways to identify, but this this human tendency to dismiss people who are different will always be there in the background, whether it becomes latent or it moves to the foreground. Right, will depend upon circumstances, but I, I don't think we can ever extirpate our tribalistic tendencies. Here is uh, John Mearsheimer in a debate with uh, Stephen Pinker. When you think about human nature, Sophie, you have to ask yourself a basic question. Do you think that we are first and foremost individuals who form social contracts? This is what liberalism is all about. Or do you think that we are first and foremost social individuals who carve out room for our individualism? Almost all enlightenment thinkers, and I think this is true of Steve, start with the individual. The focus is on the individual uh, and it's individual reason that really matters. My argument is that we are first and foremost social animals. We're born and socialized into tribes, what we now call nations. And, and this is a fundamental part of my worldview, right? That we, all right, these are competing theories, right? We're talking theory here, but I find the theory that we should be understood primarily as members of tribes or nations rather than as individuals with inalienable rights provides more useful insight into how the world works. Folks like Steve believe that those tribes get in the way of rational thinking and uh, they get in the way of coming to some sort of consensus, which equals progress. And this is quoting from Steve. He says, political tribalism is the most insidious form of irrationality today. Political tribalism, which you equate with the nation in your work. I'm arguing that there is some truth in that, that nationalism, identity with a nation, the fact that we live in a world of nation states, makes it difficult to reach progress. But if you do believe that we are social animals, that causes all sorts of problems for Steve's argument. Yeah, one of the challenges of the Enlightenment. Okay, I, I agree there with uh, Ms. Scheimer. Uh, America is becoming increasingly tribal and we've got you know significant differences between the two major political parties. We've got reduced cohesion. And now the leading candidate for the Republican Party has been knocked off the ballot for two American states. Here's a discussion on Fox News. Uh, for DeSantis, like the one in the New York Times. And how damaging is that to the governor in this stretch run? Howie, this is the most comprehensively negative coverage I can ever remember of any presidential candidate. I don't think wow. Ron DeSantis has had one good news cycle the entire year, even before he got in, is the combination of the hostility of the press and then also the fact, right, the campaign hasn't gone very well. And when we've talked about DeSantis in the past, basically since the beginning of the year, usually I've said, it's early, Howie, he's not in, you know, he just got in, <laughs> yeah. let's see, you know, it's months before the caucuses. It's not early anymore. It's really late. Yeah, and, uh, you know, certainly there's been an overwhelming number of negative stories. Uh, Richard Fowler, the DeSantis camp, sees this as a double standard, uh, that every misstep for him is portrayed as imminent doom, uh, which isn't to say that he hasn't had a long slide in the polls, financial problems, and Trump's legal issues to tear him down in the primary. 
Never have the media themselves worked so transparently to influence the outcome of a race before a So I have no doubt that Ron DeSantis would be a far more effective president of the United States than Donald Trump. But Donald Trump has never shown a capacity to run anything. So, yeah, I think Ron DeSantis would be a more competent president of the United States than Donald Trump. A single vote has been cast. It's us versus the whole system. Um, Rich, let's move on to Nikki Haley. And, uh, you know, the press says she's a very disciplined candidate. But she got into trouble in a New Hampshire town. Kind That's of amazing because the next Nikki day Haley. a nine-year-old boy at another town hall uh, called her a flip-flopper like John Kerry. Uh, given his young age, I was surprised by that. Uh, and also, you know, she does try to thread the needle in not offending anyone, but I think this has prompted a new scrutiny for the former ambassador. Uh, let me put up a couple of headlines, Rich Lowry, on the same day about Chris Christie. Washington Post said Christie defies calls to drop out. And Politico says Christie could help pave the way for Trump's nomination by siphoning votes away from Nikki Haley. That, in my view, doesn't happen by accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. And, but also, how it seems like an, an obvious point. This is a candidate who his entire rationale is stopping Donald Trump. In the one state where he's gotten some traction, New Hampshire, he's pulling 10, 14 points, somewhere in there. Clearly, his vote is coming from Nikki Haley's, and she has genuinely surged in New Hampshire. And, you know, it's 15 points. It's not extremely close in mm -hmm. New Hampshire yet. But if you add Christie's vote to Haley's vote, she'd be close. So, so why is the guy who his whole thing is about... Okay, I don't really care about Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, and uh, the media promoting a Christie exit. And great. Just as I, I fast forward to my preferred uh, time... Time slot, it, uh, it stops playing. Come on, guys, I'm trying to run a high-quality show here. All right, let's get started. Is, how do you have large-scale social groupings like nations without uh, coercion of forcing people to um, sacrifice their interests for uh, a majority or even the most powerful? So uh, the, um, you know, and that's why we have liberal democracy. That's why we have freedom of speech. Uh, that's why nations have... Uh, decreasingly identified themselves with some single religion or uh, ethnic group and have uh, ha have become defined admittedly retrospectively by something closer to a social contract. Now, it's not historically true that people sat down together and they hashed out the details for, for a country. But in terms of rationalizing, what are the defensible arrangements for a country? Yeah, I don't think the United States, I think it's really good the United States is not a Christian nation. Uh, I think it's not, a, it's good that it doesn't define itself as a all right, there, there are advantages to an, an Enlightenment liberal worldview, and there are advantages to a nationalistic uh, tribal worldview, and it depends on the situation, you know, which, which worldview will be the most ad advantageous. I think combining both, right? Uh, classical liberalism combined with nationalism, right, I think is a pretty good strategy for people in the Anglosphere. White nation, or even an Anglo nation, that, uh, and uh, the other nations that people want to live in are nations that are multicultural, that uh, accept difference, that recognize rights of individuals. Among the rights of individuals are to affiliate voluntarily with groups like religions or clubs or uh, whatever they want, but to have the violence that is monopolized by a state identified with a particular ethnic group, I, I would argue is a terrible idea because you're never going to have only the members of one bloodline, of one kindred, of one ethnic group, of one religion, uh, sharing a territory. Ter people move around, they have feet, 
every territory has people from multiple backgrounds, multiple tribes, multiple cultures. Uh, it's really a bad idea if the wielder of the enormous force called a, a government serves the interests of only one uh, one bloodline. I think that's a, a, a that is an ancient idea. I think we we naturally regress to it. I do you know, I do believe in human nature. I have all. I mean, is Japan really operating at a disadvantage, being ninety nine ninety eight percent Japanese, or is China really operating? at a disadvantage because it's 94% Han Chinese? I don't think so. People, I wrote a book called uh, In Defense of Human Nature called The Blank Slate. But I do think that there's some features of human nature, like uh, greed, like lust, like exploitation, like sadism, like revenge, that we ought to develop institutions to control, and uh, tribalism being one of them. Now, why do I think the tribalism leads to irrationality? Well, I'll be, I'll be very concrete. You present the same policy prescription. Here's a way to do healthcare. You say this came from the, uh, the the American Democratic Party. The Democrats favor it. The Republicans oppose it. They take the exact same policy. You say, oh, this came. So Steve Pinker, man of the left, but uh, also someone who's realistic about group differences, and he's friends with Steve Saylor, right? The godfather of the human biodiversity movement from the, Ameri the Republican Party. Now the Republicans favor it. The Demo Democrats oppose it. Now that's irrational. Likewise, you give people. Yeah, there are really stupid parts of tribalism and nationalism, right? And any theory is going to be maladaptive in certain circumstances and adaptive in other circumstances. Math problems, uh, results of a study. If it favors a liberal policy prescription, the uh, liberals will overlook mathematical errors and vice versa. And um, uh, conversely, if it, say, it supports a conservative uh, position. And the chat notes, nationalism has harmed Britain, so not an effective strategy for us. Well, yeah, it does seem quite obvious now that Brexit has been a disaster for Britain. And I was all on board with Brexit when, I, when it happened, but basically everything that the critics of Brexit said has essentially come true. If you give people a logical syllogism and it's consistent with a left-wing position, the, the leftists will think it's logically impeccable. The right-wingers the right -wingers will disagree. And conversely, if the syllogism leads to a different conclusion. So tribalism patently leads to irrationality classically uh, defined, that is making math errors and logic errors. And, and log So is Steven Pinker tribalistic with regard to Jews and the Jewish state? I, I would say probably mildly, moderately inconsistencies. And I think it's an incoherent basis for a modern nation state because nations are all heterogeneous. Well, nations are all heterogeneous. Yes, all nations contain heterogeneity, and they also contain elements of homogeneity. There are certainly more homogeneous nations and less homogeneous nations. Look, I'm happy that I live in a country that is not a Christian country. And I'm happy to live in a multicultural country. I do not want to live in a white country, period. Okay, so you and I agree on that. But the point I would make to you, Steve, is that there are a lot of our fellow Americans who disagree with you and me on that. And furthermore, once you go outside the boundaries of the United States, as you well know, there are lots of countries who think that, you know, multi ethnic societies is a bad thing and they regret that they have X's or Y's living inside their borders and they'd like to push them out or suppress them or so forth and so on. There's not a lot of harmony in those multi-ethnic states. And again, that is what underpins my argument that we have not made a lot of progress over time. Uh, yeah. Well, there's uh, the, uh, part of the argument I'm making is normative. Okay, let me go back here to Rich Lowry discussing Trump and Maine. See, imagine if this was flipped and this was being done to Joe Biden. That they, it feeds the narrative that Democrats will do anything to stop him. Yeah. 
Yeah, they, but they'll, they'll never acknowledge that. They think any means uh, to stop Donald Trump is legitimate, uh, e even if it's um, totally unjustified under the law. And just in journalistic terms, Howie, this, obviously it's, it's helped Trump. But in journalistic terms, the Republican primary has been the dullest contested primary that, that I, in my adult lifetime. What's been interesting is the indictments, him getting kicked off the ballot. This, this is what, where all the energy has been. It's where all the interest is. Now, usually you would devoted who's going to win Iowa, but yeah. that doesn't seem a very interesting question at the moment, does it? Because Trump leads by so much, but this is one of the reasons he leads by too, so much. Only two things have really happened in the primary. One, he's gotten indicted and kicked off the ballot, which has helped him. And two, his polling against Joe Biden has been really good, which has taken Right, there was no energy or enthusiasm or excitement around Donald Trump until he started getting indicted. So either this is a very canny, savvy plan by the Democrats to ensure that Donald Trump is the candidate for Republicans for president in 2024. Perhaps Democrats see him as the most easily beatable of all the major uh, Republican candidates, or uh, various figures who have indicted Donald Trump have been so caught up in their, say, Trump derangement syndrome that they have unwittingly significantly increased the odds that Donald Trump will become the next president of the United States. So between those two choices, I, I guess I would side more with the latter than the former. Taking the electability argument away, and those, those two things have combined to uh, increase the natural strength he already had. Yeah, and the media love covering Donald Trump, and it really has taken a whole lot of coverage that might have gone to Haley and to Sam. Uh, good, good comments. Come on, play, play Mearsheimer. The way Luke Brain's work, he has to skip between clips. Eventually, we will all have ADHD. The chat says, yeah, true, Ford has zero attention span <laughs> and, and an average IQ. Well, I'm not on my ADHD meds today. And so I guess you're suffering as a result. The individuals cannot agree about first principles. They cannot agree about questions of the good life. And sometimes those disagreements are so intense that people kill each other. So liberalism deals with that fundamental set of problems, right, by creating civil society by giving people room to live life the way they see fit. Liberalism also privileges individual rights. It says that you, Sophie, have the right to live this way. I, John, have the right to live this way. And we can live life the way we see fit in civil society. Furthermore, liberalism preaches tolerance. And the reason that liberalism preaches tolerance is because, again, people can't agree on first principles. So if you and Steve have fundamentally different views on religion, and there's a danger that one of you will kill the other because of that disagreement, what you want to do is inculcate you with tolerance, teach you to tolerate each other's different views. And then finally, liberalism privileges the creation of a state to make sure that no single person is in a position to kill another person. But that's what liberalism is all about. It's all about dealing with the fact that there is no consensus. There is no consensus on political and moral questions of the first order. Right. Well, the more you have in common, right, the more likely there will be some consensus and therefore you'll have more social cohesion and more social trust. All right, I've been reading John Mishimer's latest book, and I think it's terrific. It's called How States Think, The Rationality of Foreign Policy. And what we do on these shows, right, what we're doing together is something comes up in the world around us, and then we're trading theories about how the world works, right? So all our discussions, whether it's on the causes of inflation, 
how Joe Biden is doing, who will be the next president of the United States, is Israel winning in Gaza, who's going to win the war in Ukraine. All right, we're trading theories about how the world works, and there's no alternative to that. So Mishaim's new book, How States Think the Rationality of Foreign Policy, and you know, it's rationality is all about making sense of the world for the purpose of navigating it to pursue our goals. And rational decision-making is theory-driven, right? We employ what we think are the most credible theories combined with what we regard as the most accurate sources of information and our you know, strongest moral values. And we combine these things to try to understand what's going on inside of us and around us and try to decide on you know, what are the best policies to achieve our goals. So this discussion that we have and the discussion that politicians have and discussions in the public space are all theory-driven, all right? We, we must have credible theories, logical explanations based on realistic assumptions and supported by substantial evidence about how the world works and how we as individuals work and then how best to navigate it, all right? So rational states aggregate the views of key policymakers through a deliberative process with robust and uninhibited debate. So rational decisions in international politics rest on credible theories about how the world works and emerge from a deliberative decision-making process. And in Mishima's new book, he points out how uh, Germany before World War I, France before World War II, Japan before launching the attack on Pearl Harbor, or all, all these states were engaged in a rational deliberative process. So just because their approach did not work doesn't mean that it was not rational. As opposed to the invasion of Iraq, where there wasn't a robust debate, where this was essentially decided by a small group of people and the intelligence agencies were strongly incentivized not to provide any evidence that uh, contradicted the decisions to invade Afghanistan and Iraq. And so Mishimer regards that as irrational. Also, our involvement in Vietnam is irrational because it was based on an uncredible theory, the domino theory, that if Vietnam falls to communism, then, you know, Thailand and Indonesia will be next. So Mishheimer says, all of us, we have in our heads different theories, which are probabilistic statements made up of assumptions, causal logic, and supporting evidence about the, the world around us, right? So if our assumptions are realistic, if our causal stories are logically consistent, if our claims can find substantial support in the historical record, then we're probably dealing with a credible theory. And when we have to make a decision on a particular issue, we have to rely upon credible theories. And no theory is going to apply in all problems, all right? And circumstances constantly change. So a theory that works in one situation is not going to work in another situation. So theories are simplified descriptions of reality that explain how the world works. And they're made up of empirical claims, assumptions, and causal logic, right? So it's basically a relationship between an independent and a dependent variable. So there's no alternative to this, right? We must depend upon theory. So we can think we're super empirical, but in the final analysis, we're going to use theories to make sense of the world around us. And uh, Mishima talks about a dinner that he was at where he was seated next to Madeleine Albright, who was Secretary of State under Bill Clinton. And Madeleine Albright said to Mishima, I, I, I don't think you professors understand how the world really works. We don't use theory. And uh, Mishima said, that, that's funny because I use you as an example of among the most theory-driven 
secretaries of state that we've ever had because you believe in democratic peace theory, that if nation states are simply more democratic, that we'll have a lower chance for war. So Madeleine Albright was incredibly theory-driven, but she didn't, didn't even realize it. There's a book I just bought on Audible called The Economist Hour by Benjamin Applebaum, who writes for the New York Times. And it's an account of the relationship between economic theories and American economic policy between 1969 and 2008. I just finished another Audible book, a biography of Milton Friedman, who was perhaps the second most influential economist of the 20th century. So Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were both devotees of Milton Friedman. So these theories by various academics and economists and IR theorists right, govern how people who are running countries actually make decisions. So for Richard Nixon, his basic frame of reference was Keynesian, right? He believed that the government faced a choice between inflation and unemployment, and so he kind of ordered from that Keynesian menu. Ronald Reagan was heavily influenced by Milton Friedman's monetarist theory. And wherever you go in, in politics, you're going to be leaning on one theory or another. And as with economics, America's foreign policy since the Cold War has relied on the same sort of theories that populate academia. So the United States has generally adopted a policy of liberal hegemony, right? The policy is based on the big three liberal theories of international relations, liberal institutionalism, all right? If we can just grow liberal institutions, make them the dominant institutions of the world, economic interdependence theory that if nations just trade more with each other, they'll be less likely to go to war which is not true because Germany and England were each each other's number one trading partner prior to the start of World War I and democratic peace theory that as the world becomes more democratic, it becomes more peaceful. Well, but effectively, Germany prior to World War I and England were both democratic nation states that went to war against each other. So there's no alternative to doing business and trying to navigate through life except to use theories. So big difference between Realism in international relations and liberalism in international relations. Right? Realism is top-down. So realism starts with the premise that the architecture of the international system is the main driver of state behavior, that essentially the world is anarchy, anarchic, that, that no one's coming to rescue you. So this is a top-down paradigm. Then liberalism is a bottom-up paradigm. It believes that uh, individuals are born with inalienable rights, and that these rights of individuals and, and groups are prior to politics, that they cannot be voted away. So every liberal theory starts from the bottom up, talking about social actors and their preferences, and only then does it start to address the international system. Now, you may well be wondering, how is it that uh, Richard Spencer has never become president and, of the United so States? will he win? I think the answer to both of those is yes. As a, an outsider, yeah. a all this. It's, that's how it seems. I'd be amazed if uh, this time next year he's not the uh, president. Is the term president-in-waiting? President-elect, um, yes. President-elect. But let us now play, I think her name is Paula White. Paula White, yes. Aptly this named. Is, Paula and, and White is just kind of like perfect. <laughs> yeah, this is from the dark days of the, the, the end of Trump's campaign to get re-elected in 2020. Yeah. Here we go. Strike and strike and strike and strike until you have victory for every enemy that is aligned against you. Let there be that we would strike the ground for you will give us victory. I hear a sound of abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done. The Lord says it is done. 
on somewhat like that for another minute um i mean that is just insane isn't it it is um it's also i i say this as a cultural protestant i i guess i could say you know there was there was so So in in defense of what paula white and copeland were doing there more there's more to life than rationality and so if you're able to tap into things that you don't understand they may very well be adaptive. They may very well serve you. They may give you, you know, energy, strength, and cohesion. Such promise in bringing the word to the world. Like you can read the text for yourself. It's not in Latin. It's not in Hebrew. It's not in Greek, or et cetera. It's, you can read it and interpret it and understand the gospels for yourself. And, and the, the word is it. And then this like 500-year history of Protestantism descending into gibberish. I mean, it's it's almost kind. Of, I don't know. It's perfect or, or telling. It's it, they've lost the word. They're, they're speaking. I mean, what is what is even the justification for this? Are they speaking the language of angels or Hebrew or what? What are they hell are they doing? I have no idea. I, they've been seized with a spirit that is beyond reason, right? Plenty of uh, awesome things in life are, you know, not particularly rational. I did know at some point, but I think it's supposed to be that they're possessed by something that that's so powerful, it's overwhelmed that their brain cannot contain. It's so complicated, right? Sort of thing. So, but I don't know. I yeah, remember. but the word, but just d- delving into that Dionys- drunken Dionysian energy and just losing yourself—you're not an individual anymore. You're no longer Paula White, you know, wearing kind of sexy yoga. Uh, attire and and you know taking money from your congregation you 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 just become this like undifferentiated mass of energy and and drunkenness it's like descending it ends in death i presume i mean just the total you know returning to the to the life force itself it, it's madness again i hate it i don't think it ends in death all right people have been talking in tongues for hundreds of years right most of them don't die from it so just because it's not uh, rationally explicable or Richard Spencer hates it or intellectuals hate this kind of non-rational religious spiritual expression. It doesn't mean that it's the way of death. I despise it. In fact, it drives me crazy, but I mean, you're going to, in order for Trump to win, he's going to have to call upon something like that as bad as it is. It's probably why I'm not president and he is, I'm not willing to do that. Yeah, that's probably the only reason why Richard Spencer is not president, because he's not willing to speak in tongues. Um, he is. And he, he is able also to call upon those forces in a way. So I, I do think he's an amazing figure. And um, so, I, I do guess, think we I live in I, his age, the Trump age. Yeah, I guess an interesting question then is, why did he lose in 2020? I mean, I, it looks to me like the election was pretty heavily rigged. Uh, but I think you don't believe that. 
Well, I, I believe it to some extent. I mean, I, I, there's, look, there was COVID, and so there was that as an excuse. A, a friend of mine has actually mentioned this to me. If Richard, if, if Donald Trump had just been averagely, moderately competent with regard to how he appeared to have handled COVID, he, he would have been reelected. But his long, rambling press conferences just made, made his administration look ridiculous. So if he just, if he just supported, you know, one more uh, economic uh, protection program for, with regard to COVID, right? Sent you know checks to people in in the swing states, right? Sent checks to everyone, but particularly those marginal voters in the swing states, right? Instead of saying no to Democrats in Congress, right, he probably would have won. And he is much more than I am involved in just Republican political engineering. And he said that it is correct when Democrats say this. If everyone, if all votes are counted, Democrats are going to win most. That, that's wrong. All right. It used to always be the truth that those people who are on the margins of uh, voting and not voting, right, that they are more likely to vote for Democrats than, than Republicans. But times have changed, right? Now, now they are more likely to vote for Republicans than Democrats. So the, the most marginal voters more likely to vote for, for Trump than for, for Democrats. And as I'm trying to pull up the accurate timestamp, come on, guys, I'm, I'm trying to run a, a high-quality high quality show here. Okay, let me, let me try to pull this back together. I got a time span. He actually sent you. out a memo about rem approximately, but I'll, okay. I've always wanted to ask you to elaborate on that because a lot of people think that it was still very powerful. Well, up until I guess up until now, uh, and now it's a bit more visible that they've lost power. But you go into that. Well, what, I guess what I was saying, and, and I think we have touched on this. I, I think Jewish power is mythical power. It's a power of a story or a narrative, as what you know, what people uh, what people would usually use um, instead of the word story. But that look, most group power comes because people developed, right, evolved in certain circumstances that endowed them with certain traits that are particularly adaptable to the sort of set of circumstances that they face now. So. Down through history, Jews were not known as terribly smart, right? The notion that Jews were extraordinarily intelligent really only developed in the Middle Ages, and that's because that uh, Jews who managed to adapt to life in Europe, right, and made their living and supported their families through white-collar occupations, right, the smart Jews, right, were able to feed their families and have an above-average number of kids. Less intelligent Jews were not able to reproduce or they converted to Christianity. So it was the development of Ashkenazi Jews in Europe, a particular set of evolutionary pressures that produced an above average Ashkenazi IQ around 110. And that's the primary thing responsible for Jewish success. Combine that with Jews tend to live in urban areas. So if you live in an urban area, you're likely to be more influential than if you live out in the country. And also evolutionary pressures produce different types of personalities and certain personalities are more socially effective than other personalities. So if you are more agreeable than disagreeable, you're going to be more effective. If you're less neurotic than more neurotic, you're going to be more effective. If you're more outgoing than, than uh, in, introspective, you're going to be more effective. 
All right. So there, there are socially effective and less socially effective personalities. And there's significant reason to believe that Jews have, you know, more socially effective personalities. Again, this comes as a result of evolutionary pressures producing traits in different people. That's the essence of it. And that's where they're most powerful. It's not really about money. And it's and it's not about Israel being well armed um and being able to do those things. Th- those are those are sources of power, but like the the real power is the myth. And if you are mythically valorized, you're untouchable. Yeah, Richard says this because he is devoting himself these days primarily to, to spreading his own myths, right? To starting his, his own religion. But uh, Jewish power does not primarily come about because of, of certain myths. Oh, no. Now it's going to. It's going to just scroll, 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 just as I'm attempting to get to the next timestamp. Bloody hell, guys, I'm trying to run a show here sense of start a new spiritual process yeah, so, for example so richard thinks anywhere. that and uh, so judaism and christianity are dead and so the world needs needs a new religion which he's going to in my own small way i've just decided to forego any like big stuff i mean look if i said i'm going to go march on charlottesville tomorrow i i don't think anyone would show up Anyway, so I don't I don't even think I'm in a position to like call upon the masses and, you know, arise, you know, my underlings. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um, but uh, but I, but but I don't want it to happen. And and so like what I can do that's unique, I think a lot of other people can go and talk to the media or be funny or be outlandish or whatever. But what I can do that's unique is to really go there in terms of uh, cultural criticism, religious criticism, et cetera. I'm willing to do the things that others aren't, and I'm able to do things that others aren't. And so I, I just see that as a, it's a necessity. So, yeah, he's concentrating on myth-making. Richard made a comment that uh, Millennial Woes is wearing the same T-shirt, the same purple T-shirt that he wore at uh, the Hellgate National Policy Institute conference in the end of 2016. So uh, Millennial Woe is not exactly known for sartorial splendor. Necessity, but it's also an ideal. You have to labor in obscurity for a bit. And you have to not, you have to kind of say no to some things. I think we said yes to everything with Trump in 2016 because it was just, it's like, yeah, just say yes because it's fun. We're winning. Everything works out. Well, it didn't really work out, or at least for me. Um, And uh I, so I, there's a necessity of attempting to create a school, but I think there's also an ideal. And so, yeah, I mean, in some ways, my like arrogance or ambition or outlandishness hasn't ceased. Um, I do want to complete a project begun with Nietzsche of a full dismantling of Judeo-Christianity. And I do want to, in fact, w- with Brahman and company, I as just absurd as this he's got a project of dismantling judeo-christianity uh good luck with that sound start a new religion in the sense of start a new spiritual process that will animate institutions in the future so i'm not i'm I'm no less like arrogant and delusional and bombastic i've I've kept all of that i'm still i am who i am but you've just got to do it in a different lane and going out in front you know, endorsing candidates, jumping on their coattails, et cetera. 
I felt like that brought me more pain than it brought me some joy. And it, it brought some joy. I, you know, so I have a little bit of nostalgia, but it, but it ultimately brought me disappointment and pain and frustration. And, and so I kind of touched the stove and my, and I'm not going to touch it again. Um, it yeah. seemed like it, it did. You did seem to be having fun. I mean, like from looking at you during that time, you seem to be enjoying yourself. You seem to be on a high, um, yeah. just as an observation. But of course, I understand there are always multiple things going on. Um, there are quite a few things for me to pick up on there that you've said, and it's very interesting to hear this. Um, one of them is, I think that a problem that that you faced is a problem that other people have also faced in in the in the movement, uh, which is. A problem that Richard has faced is primarily is Richard uh, out of control, drinking and drugging and sexing and uh, constantly looking for ego fulfillment and more and more attention. Right. This is a guy who's primarily driven by his need for attention. And I think I can recognize that because I see the same tendencies in myself. If you are visible, then people think that you are a leader and therefore they think that you are trained in that. In fact, a lot of us are we're ordinary people. There's a thing about what were you before this, before this strange episode? Well, mm -hmm. I was just an ordinary guy. I worked in a library or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, everyone has a, so, so not everyone is. But we can consciously choose what we optimize for. You can choose to optimize for your Christianity, for your Judaism. You can choose to optimize for pursuit of truth. Uh, Richard has chosen to optimize his life for the pursuit of attention. Trained in and thought that this would be where they would what they would one day be doing so they didn't spend their lifetime preparing for it and other people didn't prepare them for it and then you find yourself in this position you're visible you're articulate charismatic you have an, an original perspective and therefore people think that you can lead a thousand men but that's a completely different thing it's mm -hmm. a completely different thing but then you feel the pressure to do it because you're in that position and there's right. no one else there there's no one else to do it so it does fall to you and then there's that but well, we, we don't get to I think I'm better as a contrarian. You know, I'm better. I, I'm better. I'm kind of better as a That's kind of more natural for me. Okay. Contrarian is a nice way of saying I'm going to choose the perspective that will garner me the most attention. I don't think I'll ever go invisible because I, I you know, it's already, the cat's already out of the bag. And I. Right. If you choose to optimize for trying to tell the truth, which is what I, I try to do on this show, it's not nearly as exciting or as attention getting as opposed to optimizing for garnering people's attention. But if you optimize for attention, as Richard Spencer does, then by definition, you're not optimizing for telling the truth, right? You're not going to spend much time relaying boring old truths. You're just going to be constantly on a treadmill looking for the new hot, edgy take. I, I don't like hiding. I, I don't, you know, um, but I, I think I'm better suited as a contrarian who's going to kind of drive you crazy a little bit. Um, because I need to, you know, I'm, I'm the contrarian you deserve. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I would agree with you certainly that the alt-right was a huge release of energy and it was mm -hmm. great. It was really, I mean, I, I think loads of people, everyone came to it from a different uh, thing. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was great because there was a sense of purpose and direction and yeah. that you could be part of something. Um, so it was great fun. Uh, and you know, I'll always. I think loads of people. I I, I experienced this. I witness this a lot. People will talk fondly of 2016, who weren't even yeah. at the conference or the the other things that were going on. Um, yeah, it's great if you got nothing else going on in your life and you 
get get high from living in delusion. But if you're married, if you've got responsibilities, if you've got obligations, if you've got commitments, if you've got a profession, education, if you've got other goals in life, if you want to stay connected to friends and family, if you want to maintain your good name, then any involvement with what Millennial Woes and Richard Spencer were doing would be absolutely disastrous. So uh, Millennial Woes enjoyed the the delusions of the alt-right, but anyone who associated themselves with him or Richard, all right, suffered. Right? Thousands of people's lives were ruined by their association with these guys. So I don't remember. It was just well. nuts. I mean, it's things oh, yeah. that, look, okay. I mean, I, I remember, I remember a woman who was even plausibly going to interview me. And I, we said hello, and then we started making out. And then we just made love immediately. And that, it was like I had jumped into the shoes of my childhood hero, Roger Moore. Like, it was like, a, it was like being in a, you know, it's like, oh, well, like. I wonder if he's talking about Julia Yofi here, right? She writes for The Atlantic. She was Richard Spencer's undercover girlfriend at the time of the NPI conference at the end of 2016. It's like, oh, don't talk about this. Richard doesn't want to get her in trouble. But yeah, Richard was married, but Julie Yofi at the end of 2016 was his girlfriend. I guess we have some time to waste, don't we? I mean, it's insane. And I don't even, I, I'm not really, tr I guess I'm bragging a little bit, to be honest, but uh, uh, bear with me. It's, it's it, a good thing to brag. It's funny. It, it, everyone should brag to, to a degree. But it's, it, but it's not, that's not going to happen again. Like, you know, I mean, like it was, but it, it, it also proves the point of this just euphoric insanity that was present at that time that was, that was capturing everyone. It was bigger than, than a single person. And so it, it, it was, what, what, I, I don't think I could ever denounce the time or, you know, I, I think I probably should release a certain, a certain kind of apology. That's also an apologia. That, that is a kind of justification thing for something, but, but also like a, this is what I've learned. Um, but also a defense, to be frank. Um, you know, I'm not in a court of law. I don't need to defend myself to the hilt. I can reveal some warts and scars and, you know, and, and lessons learned and all that, all that kind of stuff. But I, I think... Okay, let me just uh, move forward a little bit here. Quote Mussolini, uh, our program is simple. We want to rule Italy. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> right. since, that reminds me of, uh, I'm not saying that we... We're, we're fascists or whatever, but it reminds, and I, I honestly, I think a lot of people are like this. A lot of groups of all persuasions are like this. Basically, we just want to rule and we're happy to, for other people similar to us to rule, but it's more of a mentality thing than an ideology mm -hmm. thing. Uh, so let's just get into power. And this is what academic agent has, uh, this is his sort of men, uh, thing as well, that really it's just about getting into power and then you can work out the, the actual ideology, the actual uh, policies and so on. That's just a thing, it's a possible, uh, possible thing. Um, and then the other thing is that it, that the lack of discipline is a weakness because it makes you vulnerable and people can make accusations about what you believe and so on. But also because people who get involved in such a thing, free thinkers tend to be disagreeable and therefore yes. they tend to be antisocial. And uh, I think both you and I have experienced this kind of thing. So that then leads to... So it is to the credit of Millennial Woes and Richard that they are among the most uh, introspective of the distant right live streaming personalities chaos uh, and and vulnerability uh, for the for the whole so uh, i i could go i mean i basically endorse what you said yes because there, there's an inherently antisocial quality to being far right in this day and age 
and it, it, it's going to attract sociopaths and, and psychopaths and uh, various personality disorders. And, and you could fairly say that I'm very narcissistic or, or, or ego made. I mean, that's all fair, fair enough. But it, at least I'm a little bit aware of it and self-critical. But it's, it's going to a, a, attract a certain it, it's going to attract a certain person. I mean, one thing that I would say, and I, I'm not. So there are areas such as with uh, narcissism where self-knowledge really avails you nothing. And so Richard seems to have some self-knowledge of his narcissism, but it doesn't seem to have availed him anything as yet. I mean, when I when I heard like, you know, that recording that uh, someone made of me just like lashing out in bombastic manner, um, you know, that that was me, I, I think, also kind of in a, in a state of fear in a way as well, because, you know, it's not fun anymore. Um, this, oh, you I, know, I hate hearing that. I, yeah. I thought this is a guy who's realizing in real time that he has been converted into a hate figure. Yeah. And on that day, it was a horrible thing to hear. And there's a lot of fear in there. And, and there's bruised ego. There's lashing out. There, it, it, there's, you know, and it, look, it, I obviously wish that had not been, you know, secretly recorded and then revealed. But regardless, um, maybe it should have been in a way. It, it just... It, it was a, you know, a real thing. So, I mean, I, I think you have to, you know, you have to be honest and, and self-critical. Guys who are chuckling in the background, knowing that uh, Richard's really lost it here. We're coming back here like a fucking hundred times. I am so mad. I am so fucking mad at these people. They don't do this to fucking me. We're gonna fucking ritualistically humiliate them. I am coming back here every fucking weekend I have to. Like this is never over. I win. They fucking lose. about that that kind of situation but look i i also see things where people were interested they were they were magnetized to the alt-right because they could get into fights with people and that was part of it and you know you see that even with um you know to, to take another example just so we can be a little more objective on it like the the rittenhouse situation where you have this just the one of the men that he killed is just this totally bizarre person i think he might even have been a child abuser uh, what whatever this, uh, you is know. When I, this is one of the things that made me realize it's the same on the left <laughs> yeah it fringe it's really fringe types um moth to a flame like uh, you know and maybe even written himself didn't have or you know i've i've i don't want to go down this I, I, look your mother allows a 17 year old kid to go to a violent rally i mean uh, i don't know but put that aside 
like a moth to a flame, they, there's a certain type of person that sees that chaos energy and just can't get enough of it. And, you know, they, they, they've secretly been desiring to beat people's faces in and they want, they want to see blood and, and they're just attracted to it. It's a, it's a huge, huge issue. And, and we're all like that on, on some level. You know, people go to a football game to see a big hit or, or, or a wrestling match. So, so that's a human problem. But I think in some people it's extremely pronounced. And I, 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 again, I, I think the path forward is to be, you know, radically violent in, in, in philosophy and in ideology. And, and, and when it's too, a little too real, you're, it's going to bring out some bad things in yourself, but also you're going to be able to take, you're, you're going to be, have the blame foisted on you because you were the front man, you were leading it. You were the visible quality of it. And so you're going to take the blame for all of these invisible qualities. And, and so unless you Maybe you're taking the blame because you behaved in ways that are incredibly destructive. Have just millions at your reserve and, and just a total backstop of lawyers, et cetera. It's, it's just a, it's a bad move and appreciation. I mean, I, you know, we, we have profound disagreements, but, and so it's been an ongoing uh, project, but if we do ever meet, that could be a kind of universe ending, you know, cataclysm. Talking about Keir Starmer. In London, a couple of years ago, that I went to, and I oh, saw wow. I the sculptures from A Clockwork Orange of the naked women and all that. I saw the typewriter from The Shining. Wow, it, Adler. It was, yeah, it was amazing stuff, uh, and also the lenses that they used for uh, Barry Lyndon, which are kind of. Uh, it's funny. I so we just did this thing on my Substack that I would encourage anyone. Yeah, if you want to give me money, uh, but uh, <laughs> um, we we went into kind of mid period Kubrick. So we we started with. Um, uh, uh, Doctor Strange Love, and then we we actually did uh, Eyes Wide Shut, and but we did Barry Lyndon, we did um, Clockwork Orange, and 2001. It's we have a very particular perspective on it, but um, yes, I I very much into that stuff. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Modern I directors would... suck. Yeah, Nolan's yeah. the only. You're right. Nolan's the only one of kind of interest that you want to. You feel like you need to go see it, and like, what is he trying to tell you, etc. I I don't think there's anyone else like that. Does anyone go to a movie wondering what the director is trying to tell them? Oh, I must see the new Christopher Nolan movie. I wonder what he's trying to tell me. That's not how people work. And also the, the construct, he's very good at plot. I know it's, uh, I think it's his brother who writes the scripts. I can't remember, but mm -hmm. the, the plotting of Interstellar, I thought was fantastic. It was so clever with the, the Tesseract and the time stuff. I thought it was just great. I really enjoyed it. I mean, the film obviously has flaws. It does overreach a bit, but I thought it was just, it was still a great film. Um, all right, here's a, a, another <laughs> political question. Uh, and this is a bit thorny, but it's, it's interesting. Um, what lessons can, na can nationalists learn from the collapse of the National Justice Party? Oh. Um, oh. Well, I think I think all the lessons that we've already discussed about disagreeable. Look, the, the main lesson is that the primary factor that will affect the success or failure of a social, religious, cultural, or political movement is one circumstance. What's the situation which you can't control? But two, the thing you can control is the quality of people that you attract to the cause. So the number one reason that uh, the movement that Richard Spencer is led has been such a failure is the quality of the people that he attracted to the cause, right? Good people, right, can produce amazing results. Right? You attract losers, you're going to lose. Well, people and so on. I, I think there are a couple bigger lessons with that. There are also some kind of cheap, uh, peculiar lessons that I think are 
endemic to just TRS in general, that it's pretty vulgar stuff, guys. And I don't, the, the, the moving. And there's a type of vulgarity that can appeal to a lot of good people. And then there's a type of vulgarity, such as what TRS put out, that uh, primarily appeals to losers. From being a shock jock to you're going to vote for me for president, at least conceivably, not sure about that. Um, I, I think the other thing is that you can't, you can't. Yeah, people may take drugs, but they're really going to want to introduce their drug dealer to their family and friends. People may sleep with prostitutes or porn stars or sluts that uh, all their friends have taken for a ride, but they're not going to be particularly proud to have, you know, this lady on their arm when they go to social gatherings. You can't be a populist without being popular. And the, the popularity of like an alt-right podcast is, is very limited. Whereas with Trump, his, you know, all of those things, like Trump went on world wrestling and Trump, you know, fired people on The Apprentice. And Trump was, I remember when I was a kid in the 80s, um, when my mother would take me to the grocery store, there'd be like people, these are American magazines, like People, Us Weekly, The National Enquirer, they're all up there. And it would just be like Trump, Trump, Mar Marla Maples, Trump, Ivanka, you know, Trump, bankrupt, you know, I, he was just like part of my life in some kind of crazy way. The best sex I ever had, you know, that headline from the New York Post. Uh, I, so all of those things allowed him to succeed. And so you can't just create populism of like, you know, the Jews are bad and Wall Street's bad and we're going to give you money or what. It, 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 it's, it's kind of a LARP, to be honest. Like populism, at the very least in the United States, it does focus around figures, whether it's Donald Trump or William Jennings Bryan, who's actually a misunderstood man in many ways. Uh, the guy from Inherit the Wind, um, uh, actually an interesting progressive. But anyway, um, it's not going to work. And I think the other, a kind of darker lesson that I learned, um, I remember on January 6th and people were, showing me uh, in a group that I'm involved in, they were, they were showing me text me or, or telegram messages from TRS. And it was like, you know, today we made our first strike against the Jews. And, you know, Ashley Babbitt is the martyr in an ongoing cause where Hitler left off, you know, Ashley came. I mean, it just, it was insane. Um, and, you know, we, we need to be willing to lose 40 million like the Germans did in this cause. I just, just, just on and on of this kind of stuff. And look, first off, all of that's ridiculous. Ashley Babbitt was motivated by Trump and QAnon. And she was not motivated by you. She's not part of your cause, et cetera. But I think there's also even a kind of like darker thing that I learned of who are the real Nazis. So you have NJP as this, you know, outrageous alt-right 2016, you know, group. Like, you know, we like Hitler, you know, haha. You know, I, I, I'm not misrepresenting them by saying that. They're, they're, they're vulgar and out, outlandish and a little bit bash or a lot bashing. But it was actually the mainstream deluded boomers who attempted to take over the government. So while Mike and Stryker were on a podcast sitting at home, all of those deluded boomer conservatives were almost accomplished and out, keep maintaining Trump in power against the wishes. They, they didn't almost keep uh, Trump in power, right? The January 6th riot had absolutely no prospects for success. Elliot Blatt says in the chat, as long as amusing as that Richard Spencer Charlottesville clip is, it would be nice the internet could forget after a period of time people should be allowed to evolve. And my point is, as long as that clip is apropos, apropos to whatever Richard is doing or working on right now, people will continue to play the clip. As soon as it's no longer apropos appropriate, as long as it's no longer particularly insightful, useful, uh, as long as it's you know, no longer a window into Richard's soul, then people will stop, stop playing the clip, right? Because it's such a good distillation of what uh, Richard Spencer is, people keep playing the clip. As soon as it's no longer an appropriate or accurate distillation of what you know drives Richard Spencer, then people will stop playing the clip.
branches of the mainstream media, both political parties, the military. I mean, look, that, that whole thing was buffoonish as hell, but it almost worked. And they did it, not you. So I would ask, who are the real Nazis here? Is it the person who will freely drop an N-bomb or deny the Holocaust? Or is it, in fact, the deluded boomer who was part of something bigger than herself that she had no control of in, in, in a way? Look, no, nobody who knows anything about American politics would make the point that uh, the January 6th riot almost kept Trump in power. That is 100 percent. It's rare that someone says something that's just 100 percent wrong. But this argument by Richard is just 100 percent wrong. The January 6th riot never had 0.1% of a chance of keeping Donald Trump in power. Acted unconsciously and almost uh, flipped the election. Uh, so I, I think that, that's a kind of analytical point. It's not really a personal jab, but it's, it's kind of like, who's more radical? Is it, is it the, the mainstream boomers or, or is it TRS listeners? And I, I would actually say that the... the... Uh, who's, who's more radical? It doesn't get you anywhere, right? It's not a useful question. Right. The, the primary answer to why the National Justice Party imploded, why the Richard Spencer Party imploded, why most political, religious, cultural uh, parties implode is because of the low quality of people that they attract. Right. The reason most lives implode is because of the low quality of, of people in your life. Mainstream is more radical than a lot of the alt-right. So, um, you know, it just is what it is. It, you know, you can look back on it now and say it, they shouldn't have done it. OK, but that, that's retrospective. I don't I don't really want to bash anyone to be honest like i you know mike 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 smart and he's he can be funny and vulgar and uh, i feel like the you know I, I i think with those guys i think the british bridge is burned from both ends so i don't i don't know if i'll ever if i even really want to do any you know I, i'm glad that we can break bread you know uh so to speak here but i'm not sure that i would ever really do that with trs people or if i'd want to but i don't want to bash them too bad um you know they took an l it's okay i've taken l's it, it, it maybe it was ill-conceived but can you learn from this and and, and kind of learn deeper lessons. I, I think that's the, the big question. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a lot that I can say there, but uh, I don't want to use up time with my own opinions. Um, okay, not finished. Said 2024 isn't... 20 that's an example of why Millennial Woes is a pretty good interviewer, right? He doesn't take up time on his interviews with his own opinions. That's appropriate. 2016. The rules have changed. The stakes are higher. <clears throat> if you've read The Art of the Deal, Trump gives multiple examples in which he gets revenge. But these examples convey weakness. His revenge is weak. Why should anyone believe that he will do what is needed? I think in general, um, and I don't, I don't know what to say. It's out of my control, but I, I can just see it. Um, when you, when there's masses of people don't think the government's illegitimate. That really is, that you know, follow the Soviet Union, uh, American Civil War. Whatever, it can go in all sorts of different ways, but it's going to go in one of those ways. I think if anything, Joe Biden proved that you, we cannot go back to normalcy. That you, because I think he generally wanted that. Maybe just due to the fact that he's old and white, you know, <laughs> you know, that he just wanted to have everyone on board. We're all going to forgive each other. And I don't think that's possible. I just, I think these things are too far gone at this point. And so I, I, I do think that something that we can't even quite. Right. Love and forgiveness is a terrific strategy in some circumstances. Rage and resentment is a terrific strategy in other circumstances, right? For, for every emotion, for every strategy in life, there is a time and a season under heaven where it's adaptive and another time and another season where it's maladaptive. Vision now is, is possible just around the corner. That's interesting. There, there have been several people say, I've seen quite a few memes recently about how back in the old days, like the 2000s even, mm -hmm. certainly the 90s and certainly the 80s, America, and this also is certainly true of Britain and I guess every Western country, people could be friends who were not politically aligned. Uh, people could even have relationships with someone from... Uh, mind it depends on the situation, right? In a particularly intense situation, it it is difficult to be friends 
with, with people with whom you differ significantly, all right? The more significant the difference and the more salient the difference between you and your friend, right, the more strain your friendship is going to fall under. The more you have in common with your friend, with your fellow citizen, your neighbor, right, the more cohesion and uh, social trust that you'll have. Right? This is balance theory, right? The more you're balanced with your friends, the stronger the friendship. On the other hand, if you grow and change, right, your friendships are going to wax and wane. You're going to lose some friends, gain other friends. You've done that yourself recently. Oh, yeah. Now yeah. that I think of it, but it's not a common thing. I mean, most no. people, it's very politicized. And this, I think this is just the tenor of the age where it... politics is not the salient issue for most people, right? Politics is a salient issue for probably less than 10% of the population. So it's not usually an adaptive strategy to make politics your most salient issue, right? We should make our friends, our family, our community, right? Our, our religion, our, our profession, our education, right? Our, our hobbies, these should be salient. But I love politics. So I, I talk about politics and follow politics more than would be adaptive for me. But for me, it's a recreational pursuit. I don't confuse it with, I have this tremendous ability to change the world around me. All right, we only have a very modest ability to change the world around us, but we can have a significant effect on individuals around us. And we can have a significant effect on the trajectory of our own life. But we're highly unlikely to be able to change the nation's immigration policy on our own. Now, I just see two, two extremes since I started doing this daily show. One people, they're just one type of person, just politics, politics, politics is number one issue in their life. And then when politics doesn't go their way, they tend to go to the other extreme and they want absolutely nothing to do with politics. So I, I choose the middle road, right? Have an interest in politics if it's recreational for you. Uh, have, have an interest in politics to the extent that you can you know, influence your community, influence other people, or at least you know, do the responsible thing of trying to promote what will make your nation, your tribe, your community better. But for most people, most of the time, there should be other things that are more important. This, as someone said, the stakes are very high now. And yeah, tensions are very high. So it's bigger yeah. than race. So at least according to polling, a conservative men are more fearful of their daughter marrying a Democrat than they are of their daughter marrying a black or, or et cetera. I mean, it's, it, 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 yeah. Yeah, that, that's what people will say, tell a pollster, right? They're not going to tell a pollster that they don't want their daughter to marry someone who's black. Crash says in the chat, Richard Spencer overestimates the impact of all this QAnon woke, right? None of that stuff really matters. Yeah, it's just signs of delusion, right? If you're into QAnon, if you're into, you know, that, that sort of nonsense, right? It means you're a loser who wants to be distracted from reality. That's a poll, so maybe they're not willing to say what they really, oh, fair enough. But it's still powerful. And like large percentages, you, you found like 40% believe that violence is necessary or it's just great. The polls shock me. Like they're, it, it, I, I expect a poll to just demonstrate like how boring the American public is. But in actuality, they deny the Holocaust and want to kill their neighbors. <laughs> it's like, <"Whoa." laughs> Exactly. It's like, you're the one saying, calm down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, losers, right? You think people with, with families and professions and who are excited about their education and their hobbies and their religion are out there publicly denying the Holocaust and wanting to kill their neighbors? No. People who are burning up inside and who are losing at life, right, want to make everyone else miserable. People who are winning at life, you know, want to make other people more happy. I know exactly what you mean. You see these polls, you think, fuck. Yeah, you, you know what they mean because this is, the, this is the crowd 
that both uh, Richard and Millennial Woes have immersed themselves in. Losers. It's crazy out there. Uh, the ordinary the ordinary public are not the, they're not the boring people of the you know, 20 30 years ago anymore no they, they want radical change in society yeah. this is definitely more true in america than britain but it's true here as well mm -hmm. um that the old as you say the old stability is no it, it's it cannot come back and people don't really want it back either because the injustices are so extreme now that okay i need a quick uh palate cleanser before we move on with politics this is from a podcast called the 13th step and 13th step means sleeping with people you meet in a 12-step program thing politicians tell us is a national priority especially addiction. now as one person in the addiction field told me recently the population of people who need treatment is larger and sicker than ever just getting someone in active addiction through the door of a treatment facility can feel like a miracle the idea that additional harm could be on the other side there has to be someone or something that should have stepped in here right to figure this out, I started by doing what I always do, working the phones. I called academics at Harvard and Stanford, advocates, researchers, employees up and down the organization chart at treatment facilities. And pretty quickly, I realized my specific question, how Eric Spofford got away with alleged sexual misconduct, was tightly wound up with a much bigger question. How does anyone get away with unethical behavior in the addiction treatment industry? Because, unfortunately, this industry has lived through a lot of bad stuff. Insurance fraud, urinalysis fraud, misleading marketing, patient brokering, and straight-up dangerous care. So, wh so what's the number one reason there is so much abuse in the treatment industry? Because the government has rigged the game so that all health insurers in the United States have to pay, be willing to pay a minimum of $2,000 a day for people to get uh, treatment. For, for their addictions. And so to meet this government-created demand, you have this explosion of treatment centers. And remember, if a treatment center genuinely puts someone on the road to recovery, there's no more income for that person. Right? If somebody goes to a 12-step program and they get recovery, right, then they're not going to come back to a treatment center. So treatment centers are strongly incentivized to keep people sick because if people genuinely recover, there's no more money to be made from them. And this was created by government intervention mandating that all health insurers in the United States have to uh, fund drug rehab. While I've been trying to understand what happened in Eric's situation, I've also learned a lot about how the industry deals or fails to deal with all sorts of unethical behavior. Back in the you know 80s and 90s, it was just the wild, wild west. This is Robin Piper. Robin is a CEO and clinical director of a facility in Florida that treats substance use disorder. It's called Turning Point of Tampa, and Robin's been in charge for more than two decades. So she's at a front row seat to both the positive changes and the dark times that this industry has experienced. Um, I, I think it's getting better, but it's not where it needs to be by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, so we're not wild. Wait, Kristen Ruby, the... The tech woman who was particularly interested in uh, Mike Benz. All right, uh, she's on Fox News right now, so let me play her clip. Times is taking. My, thought, my thoughts are that plagiarism does not benefit humanity. We have very strong copyright uh, protection laws in this country. And unfortunately, what we have seen over the past year is some of the largest 
tech companies in the AI space basically use machine learning to essentially circumvent those copyright laws. When you have machine learning models that are training on the work and the data of journalists or publications, and those publications are not receiving... Okay, so she's done a bunch of uh, tweets about Mike Benz, who used to be known as Frame Game Radio in distant right circles. And here she is uh, on Fox News. Royalties or any compensation for that underlying, uh, underlying training data, there's a problem. And that is why this case is going to really set legal precedent, depending what happens here. Uh, because many people feel like the New York Times. Not everyone can come, fo come forward and sue, but make no mistake. This has impacted actors, it's impacted writers, it is impacting every artist, every single creative industry. And what is gonna happen is if there is no way for creative, uh, creative professionals to opt out, they're gonna mm -hmm. opt out of being in the industry in general at large. And you will see a mass exodus of creative talent unlike anything that you've ever seen before in this country. And that is really problematic. Yeah, great point there. The number of lawsuits filed against OpenAI has been growing and growing. Some major notable American authors uh, also suing. The AP reporting that John Grisham, Jody Peacock, George R. R. Martin, that's... Okay, interesting to see uh, Kristen Ruby move from, from Twitter to Fox News. All right, just a couple more minutes of this palate cleanser on the wild, wild west of drug treatment programs. Wild, wild west. We're still the Wild West. I can't give Robin credit for this Wild West bit. It's such a common description of the industry. It's become a cliche. But Robin is the person who really helped kickstart my understanding of where that term comes from. I asked Robin my specific question about Eric Spofford and sexual misconduct. I remember when I was becoming famous as a blogger and there were all these articles written about me and institutional voices such as Paul Fishbein at Adult Video News, the trade publication for the sex industry, would say, well, Luke is thriving in the wild, wild west because right now the internet's the wild, wild west. There's no regulation. And so he's able to you know, get away with things and to do things that institutions cannot do. Right? There, there was much more freedom of speech when I started blogging in 1997. Conduct. And she told me, if you really want to understand why that happens in the recovery world, actually, the term she uses is unhealthy boundaries. If you want to know why that happens, here's where you have to start. Our field has a lot of people in it who got into it because of their own recovery. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm in recovery. But they don't always have the education or the training that they need in order to do their job not only correctly, but appropriately. Appropriately. Unhealthy boundaries can simply mean not maintaining a professional distance, or worse. You know, it's really well known. If you put down, you put down one coping skill like alcohol and drugs, and you know, you feel horrible, and you're going to pick anything up that makes you feel good. And it's not hard to figure out that new relationships and flirting and being attracted to somebody makes you feel good. Robin stresses that, of course, if you work in the addiction field, having lived experience can be helpful. So a great comment I heard about AA programs is that uh, if you go to an AA meeting, it's a room full of sex addicts who don't drink anymore. So very typical for people uh, kicking their drug or alcohol addiction and they substitute for it sex. But in my reporting, I found some treatment centers. So the typical trajectory is people start off in AA or Cocaine Anonymous, then they move to some kind of sex addiction treatment program and then next move to some kind of money sobriety program, such as Under Owners Anonymous or Debtors Anonymous. Hire people less than a year into their recovery. Granite Recovery Centers did. 
One source told me two years is the industry standard, but clearly not everyone follows that. Robin says recovery requires a lot of hard, introspective work. And she thinks there are some people who don't put in the time. And then they go work for a treatment center or open their own. So they have really unhealthy boundaries and and they don't see it as a profession as much as a calling, let's say, if you want to be positive about that. So one of the first things I learned when I started going to psychotherapy on a regular basis was this whole concept of boundaries. And I got a handout from my therapist because I really didn't know what, what boundaries were. And I was terrible. I was, I was interposing myself all sorts of places where I shouldn't have been. And I was allowing, allowing I guess, encouraging you know, people to be you know, all up in, in my life. And one thing that I noticed with people early in recovery or people with a kind of shaky sense of self is that they will often you know, announce their boundaries. While for people who have matured and developed, they don't have to announce their, their boundaries, right? Because when people have a clear sense of who they are, what they stand for, what they're aiming for, they usually don't need to announce their boundaries. It just becomes very obvious to people. For example, I would go to a party and I would find you know, a particular woman that you know, I'd get into a relationship with. She was just, just my type. And uh, more formidable women would intimidate me. So uh, predators, they sense prey. Right, they sense weakness, and you're much more likely to get picked off if you're on the sidelines rather than being in the middle of the herd. Right? You live in the middle of the herd, you're much less vulnerable to predators. But people who give off signs that they're weak, that they have poor boundaries, that uh, they can be manipulated, right? they are going to encourage predators. Um, so they don't know how to conduct themselves, and they still have their own issues. We deal with a vulnerable population um, where unhealthy boundaries are more lethal and more dangerous. What Robin's suggesting here is that additional education and professional development is especially important for people in recovery. And this is something I heard over and over from almost everyone I interviewed for this episode. This industry lacks professionalization. For example, Robin is in recovery, but she also has two master's degrees. She was a clinician before she became a CEO. She's a licensed mental health counselor. And when you study to get a counseling license, for example, you learn all about basic ethical standards, such as you can't date your client, and the profession is guided by those rules. This all may seem like a no-brainer, but we are stomping right on a major nerve in the recovery world here. Remember this line from Eric Spofford? Nobody is more qualified to help addicts besides recovered addicts. Robin asked me, does Eric Spofford have a master's degree in administration? Oh, no. Oh, no. Are they a licensed mental health counselor? Do they have that kind of training? So the shorthand is good people make you feel good. Bad people make you feel bad. If you have people in your life who consistently make you feel bad, you don't have to cut them out of your life necessarily, but you can reduce the frequency with which you interact with them. You can't reduce the duration of time in which you interact with them. You can't reduce whether the the proximity, whether it's in person or, say, just over the phone, right? There are all sorts of ways you can turn the dial up or down on your relationships in life. So uh, proximity, uh, frequency, duration, and intensity, right? You can gray rock people, meaning that uh, you don't give them much to work with. You just, you know, are polite in their presence, but you don't give them material with which they can hurt you. So turn the dial up or down on people, depending if they make you feel good or feel bad, by dialing up and down proximity, 
frequency, duration, and intensity. I found that very useful tip. In education, to raise them to that level of professionalism that running an organization like this really does require. Do you have to have survived addiction in order to treat it? Is being in recovery qualification enough for a job? With any other disease, these would be totally insane questions to ask. It's like saying that a cancer survivor, right? Hey, I'm a cancer survivor. Let me tell you what kind of chemotherapy you should have. This is Mark Mishik. He used to be the president and CEO of Hazelden Betty Ford in Minnesota, probably the most famous treatment center there is. Well, everyone would go, well, that's silly. Why would we ever agree to that? So why do we agree to it here? Why, why is that okay in this particular field? Why is it okay? The short answer is stigma. Here's Robin Piper again. I think, you know, the medical community has always put us over there on the side of those troubled people. <laughs> For most of our country's history, the prevailing belief about addiction was that it was a choice, a moral failing. We figured, why help people who choose to drink or use drugs? We were so wrong about that, by the way. For most of the 20th century, mainstream medicine either grudgingly treated or refused to treat people with substance use disorder. And multiple times in history, we've decided that our criminal justice system was better suited to solve this problem than the medical system. So people with substance use disorder were basically left to treat themselves. There is a long history of people in recovery stepping up where the rest of us had failed. We've certainly made progress. There's more money. There's much more attention for mainstream medicine. Okay, I recommend this podcast, The 13th Step, about a guy running some rehab programs who was also gave gave off certainly the impression there's evidence that he was a significant sexual predator. All right, uh, interesting episode here of Talkline with Zev Brenner, someone who converted to Hasidic Judaism and then uh, left Judaism and turned to Christianity. All right, Yechiel Abloid. In the Kehillah. And um, I actually think here might be a good place to address this too, that there are these weird accusations that I'm like going to write a book or something about my... Yeah, yeah, that, well, that was one of the bloggers that said that the reason why you went through this whole process, you wanted to write a book. That's a reaction I'd often get from people when they found out that I was a convert to Orthodox Judaism. They say, oh, and they found out I was a writer. Oh, you just want to write a book and exploit us. So insane. I, I just, I can't understand where people can get these sorts of ideas from. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not going to write a book on Yiddishkeit or my experiences in the Kehillah. That's. I'm. I. My. My. My goal is just to kind of put it behind me to to recognize that it was something that I got into when I was when I was younger, and I I have fond memories of things. And it was. I, I view. I view that part of my life as having been crucial to my spiritual development because it forced me to to actually be self disciplined, which is something that is not encouraged in America at all. You know, getting up to Davin Vasikin and and, you know, putting on at least the two sets of tefillin per day. And later on, I'll, I'll admit to it. Why, what, what's it matter? I started wearing Shemishirabe tefillin according to the, the sheet in Priyayitzchayim, according to the advice of Aruv McKibble, who I was speaking with at the time. He recommended that I do that for Mincha. So I dive in Mincha at home a lot, all the time because of that and go hear Hazurus shots later. But um, it forced me to develop a very real sense of self-discipline so that I would actually do the things I need to do rather than just thinking like, oh, spiritual things are cool and not really having anything grounded. So it, yeah, I, I appreciate that. And my experience in the Kehillah was overwhelmingly positive as far as, as far as I'm concerned. You know, other people might have felt hurt or something, but that's just because they don't know what it's like to deal with others from foreign cultures.
Okay, let's take one phone call before we break. Let's go to Hava, upstate New York. Hava, are you there? Go ahead. Hello. Um, I'm a Gioris. I just celebrated 18 years McGuire, and I was actually McGuire with Rabbi Steinberg's Bezdin, and I have clung to Torah. Okay, so she's saying that she's a convert who converted to Orthodox Judaism through the same Jewish law court as this man. <laughs> through thick and through thin, through better or for worse, with all of the narrative that comes along with it Craziness. for these 18 years. And um, I want to just say I have a lot of emotions about your story, Mr. Black, and I want you to know that's, that's that a pseudonym, you but, yeah. now as a mother. Come again, I'm sorry. I'm speaking to you now as a mother, that every time my children go into Shadisha now because of your story, there will be a question. So she's saying because she converted to Judaism and then these stories about all sorts of other converts to Orthodox Judaism who, who left. So when you talk to people who run Orthodox Jewish law courts, a Bate Din, they will talk about how 95% of the people they convert are still Shomer Shabbat, still Sabbath observant, at least publicly five years later. But often when I talk to just regular Jews, they will tell me that their anecdotal experience is that only, say, 50% of converts are still staying with, with the program. And so this woman who converted saying that because of all these converts who end up leaving Orthodox Judaism, it makes it more difficult for her children, who are the descendants of a convert, to find a, a match for, for marriage because it gives converts a bad reputation. ...of whether or not my children are kosher for a shidduch. And for that, I hope that you take a real... So a shidduch means a, a match for, for marriage. Feel long, hard look at yourself. And I know that you will have to answer to the great creator that made us all. Let me just say this. Oh, I'm sorry, but I'm, I, hello. I'm, I'm sorry. Let me I'm to reply here with no, fullest respect. I, there have been plenty of stories in the past of Gairam who quit Judaism. I've known every other Gair I've known has quit Judaism. I don't think my story itself is going to So people tend to see the world as they are rather than as it is. So converts to Judaism who quit Judaism will tell you that every other gear they know quit Judaism. Uh, then those who run Orthodox Jewish law courts will tell you 95% uh, don't. I, I suspect the truth is somewhere in between. Those problems. It's the big media uproar that came out from somebody making problems. So I'm sorry about this impacting you, but I, I, you shouldn't blame me for this. This is a problem that's always existed. By, by the way, there may have been some, but we had interviewed, I don't know if Rabbi Olbaum, we have Rabbi uh, Herod Steinberg, um, and we've asked them, they've gone through hundreds of conversions, and to their recollection, they don't know of any other cases of somebody who left the religion afterwards. Some of them may have not become religious, you know, when they've gone through the conversion, and according to what they said, is that... seems to be the kind of religion that you're in now, some kind of a, a Gnostic, esoteric Christianity that the rest of Christians would say is, you know, problematic. But regardless, it was your decision to revert to your former religion was this influenced at all by the way you were treated in the community you went into? Very unusual. No, I believe I, I covered this earlier, but no, I, I was very pleasantly treated by the Satmar Kehillah. I don't like that people try to say that they're so mean to Gairam and they throw them out and, you know, make all sorts of busyness on them and stuff. Because it's not true. I mean, Satmar is probably... So Gairam means converts to Judaism and Satmar is the most populous... Hasidic sect in the United States and rabidly anti-Zionist. Sama is probably the, the best place to be a ger. You know, like in any in any culture, 
any different sort of culture, you know, you're not gonna be able to completely connect with people, you know, even if this is just something as as different as like, I can't really think of a good other similar sort of thing. Um, whether it's the you know, Williamsburg Cedish, or if it's like a Litvish Kehila, or even a modern Orthodox community, which is the most American culturally, you know, there, there are going to be certain cultural miscommunications and things like that. But I mean, honestly, Satmar was the place in Williamsburg. I don't want to say Satmar Bidik because because it wasn't just Satmar. You know, I had friends who were in Klosenberg. I, I went to dinner for Tish. I, I daven in Vizhnitz all the time. That's the main Nisikh that I ended up davening with in the end was the Vizhnitz or Nisikh. Um, it's they're they're very they're they're generally warm they're generally warm decent people it's it's not like they were mean to me like nobody was mean to me people will usually treat you inside orthodox judaism outside orthodox judaism according to what you deserve according to what you contribute to their life and to their community so if you're an asset to them they will treat you warmly and if you're a threat to them they'll treat you negatively there's, there's, you know, the misunderstandings due to my wife's and my age difference. So there are people who are really weirded out by that. Yeah, his wife is about 20 years older, and she left, left uh, Orthodox Judaism with him. Which makes sense. I mean, I, I don't personally care what other people think. Otherwise, I wouldn't do what I do. But You can't help but care what other people think. The reason that uh, you hear so often, oh, I don't care what other people think, it's like a desperate pushing away of reality. Right? There's no way that we can go through life without caring what other people think. Uh, the, the less you care is probably you know, the greater the sign that you're a sociopath. We have to notice what's going on with other people for reasons of connection, for reasons of learning, appropriate social cues, or more effective ways of living. All right, this, this recitation of I don't care what other people think, it's purely defensive, it's absurd, it doesn't work. Um. It's 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 like um, they were very nice. They were perfectly nice to us. I, I, there are no hard feelings for between me and from my end at least. There are no hard feelings with the Williamsburg Kehillah. So we're computer and all this. I was like, you know, for you, it's in your blood and in your bones. For me, I, I have no Jewish genetics. You know, um, as far as I'm aware, there was one little period of time where 23 and me had misassigned something, and they said I had a little tiny bit of Ashkenazi Jewish in me. But, you know, later on, they got rid of it, and it's that's not really there. It's probably my my bit of German genetics that ended up being mistaken for Jewish. But because um, the region the region in Germany my family was from was, you know, southwestern Germany and Alsace, which was which is not part of. So I don't have any Jewish ancestors, and yet I feel quite happy in Jewish life. On the other hand, yeah, the more genetically you have in common with other people, the more politically, culturally educationally, professionally, the more you have in common with others, the greater the chances you'll get along with them. So certainly genetic relatedness makes it easier to get along with others. France, but anyway, that that's not quite so. Anyway, final question. Are you still yeah. in, are you going to keep in touch with any members or friends that you had? I'm sure you had some over there. Are you going to keep in touch with any of them? Other than those who have, there, there's, there are only two people who I feel comfortable talking with at this time. Um, I, I don't see the point maintaining friendships with people from the Kahila because it's it's just painful for everybody. You know, they're going to want to be out of me back and, you know, they're going to be. Right. This is balance theory. The more important something is and then 
the more you differ with someone on something vitally important, right, the more vulnerable your friendship becomes and the weaker your friendship becomes. Talking about stuff that I'm, I'm just frankly not not particularly interested in discussing at this point, you know, they'll be trying to trying to convince me that I'm wrong. And it's like, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, I've, I've, I've learned a lot. And I know this isn't this isn't the, the right thing for me at this point. This okay, let's get some Mark Shapiro here. Right position. And we all can appreciate and understand that because otherwise you have chaos. Can you imagine if the local Rav said something and another Rabbanim would come in and say, you don't have to listen to the rabbi? We understand that. On the other hand, we can also understand that if your local Rav says something and then uh, like Rav Vadi Yosef comes to town or official Shachter, I saw... Right. Orthodox Judaism usually operates on the basis of your local Orthodox rabbi. You develop a relationship with one particular rabbi who knows you and who knows your circumstances and then is able to give guidance and direction based on those two criteria. This person, the first instructor, and he comes to town and he says something else. We can understand that uh, here you have the local rabbi said one thing and the first instructor said you don't have to do this. We can understand why people would say, well, you know, well, I'm going to follow the first instructor. He's the good old daughter. Uh, so we, we can understand, we can appreciate that. So uh, um, not to mention the fact that in this case, uh, Bomberger was invited in, uh, but I want to read you something. And uh, this comes, you can see this on page 233. After you're completely out of line. Class number three on Rav Lambert uh, Bomberger, the Wurzburger Rav. You know, I listened to the class I, from two weeks ago. I mistakenly said uh, Bamberger's was a supermarket. No, no, it was a department store. I still remember that. Uh, uh, I. Uh, it's funny because uh, two weeks ago, Tuesday, I we, we, that was the first time really we heard about the rally. And I said that uh, I don't know what's going to be. Is the uh, the right-wing world, the Haredi world? Up so Mark uh, Shapiro is a modern Orthodox Jew and a strong Zionist. Until now, I said they have. And he's also a professor of modern Jewish thought. Refused to participate with uh, the with the Jewish community as a whole, and I called attention to how in 2002, when they had the previous great rally in Washington, uh, although there was a lot of pressure, they refused. Uh, and I said it would be nice if they participated, but uh, don't know what's going to happen. And then the next day, or even maybe that night, I was sent. Uh, uh, yeah, to, uh, I guess that night someone sent me that the Aguda sent, had sent out. Uh, in light of the ongoing life-threatening danger, et cetera, et cetera, they, they think it's important, that means uh, to uh, be involved in what you need to do, that there be a large turnout. Accordingly, in consultation with our rabbinic leadership, they say that we are circulating to our friends and constituents in information about the rally. It's funny. They don't say we urge everyone to go to the rally uh, there. Uh, they simply, it's sort of a parved statement. They say it's important that there be a large turnout. Therefore, we're circulating uh, information about it. They don't actually say we urge everyone to go. Okay, that's how it stood. So I, my attitude was, hey, this is interesting. They're sort of breaking with the previous uh, approach. And uh... So out of all the Hasidic sects, uh, Chabad was probably the most anti-Zionist prior to World War II. But since the creation of the modern state of Israel, while Chabad is not officially Zionist, they probably operate effectively in the most pro-Zionist fashion out of all the different Hasidic sects. From my perspective, I think it's a great thing. I said that uh, if there was tens and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of black and white, uh, it would be very nice. However, as we got closer to the rally, we saw that it wasn't so clear. And uh, two days before the rally, uh, Someone on the Moses Godoli Torah comes out with a statement against going to the rally, stating that uh, 
Uh, that's not what Jews do. We don't go to rallies, which is factually completely incorrect. Uh, we had the World War II rally during the Holocaust. We had rallies in 67 and other times in which even places like Tells went. So I want to leave that aside because that doesn't really interest me. What does interest me is the statement that came out uh, the night before, Rosh Chodesh Kislev, the night before the rally. In fact, many people late, late at night, many people only saw this when they were on the way to the rally. So then the question came up, do they turn around or not? And uh, and this relates very much to what we're going to do, because uh, although the Aguda did come out in favor, uh, a number of people in their Moetis Gedolia Torah uh, would come out against it. So there was a, obviously a uh, divergence of opinion. And uh, it could be also that the Aguda... So he's talking about the Haredi, the most religious group of uh, Orthodox Jews, uh, overwhelmingly are not Zionist and overwhelmingly do not participate in these pro-Israel rallies. The lay leadership was very much in support of it when the rabbinic leadership wasn't. Uh, but in the letter signed by a number of them, the the, the, the Gedolim, it said in opposition to going to this, um, the opinion of our Rabbanim, Zecher Sadek Yivrachel, whose Masorah we hold, warned us from joining with religious streams who are far from the Derech HaTorah and Masorah. So that's exactly what we're speaking about now. And this is following the Hersheyan view. It's not in line with the Nitziv's approach, which is the exact opposite of this. I find that a little bit. So Shimshon Raphael Hirsch was a leading 19th century creator of modern Orthodox Judaism, but he very much wanted modern Orthodox Jews to separate themselves from the wider Jewish community, while other Orthodox rabbis believe that Jews should um, have more connection with the wider Orthodox Jewish community. So Shimshon Raphael Hirsch was no great Torah scholar, but he was very influential. Bit unusual because uh, the Aguda really is supposed to represent the literature world. And then it says, especially when this uh, the schedule was published, uh, the speakers are people who, whose essence is the opposite of Torah and Yira and Sneos. Uh, okay, I don't want to get involved in this. I think it's uh, talk about a shadow mentality and uh, in a bad sense. I fully agree with what Rivera Wine said. If you haven't heard his uh, his audio about this, but uh, the idea that look, this is a propaganda war fought on all fronts. They're trying to do to Israel what they what did rightly so in that case of South Africa. That means no sporting events, no entertainment, trying to turn the whole younger generation against it. Having an actress. So Mark Shapiro, as someone who's Zionist, you know, thinks that the pressure on South Africa and its apartheid policy was, was a good thing, was a great thing. But applying similar measures to, to Israel, and there are ways that you can accurately call Israel an apartheid state. It's not an apartheid state like South Africa. It's a different type of apartheid. But he thinks applying that same pressures to Israel is wrong. Speak at the event is a good thing. It's a positive thing. We need all these people. We need this has to be fought on every single front. So, uh, I mean, I, look, I can't understand that world. I can't understand the mentality. Uh, all I know is that when they come, as Rabbi Wine says. Uh, when he says, he, I can't understand that world, it means that like, his passion for the Jewish state of Israel overwhelms his ability to empathize with a different hero system a different point of view. So Mark Shapiro was raised modern Orthodox, he's lived his entire life within modern Orthodoxy, and on something that's so salient for him, Zionism, his emotions will prevent him from having empathy for the traditional Haredi non-Zionist perspective. Uh, no one's protected. They're going to come, uh, they're coming for you in Brooklyn, they're coming for you in Lakewood, they're coming everywhere. And uh, if we can't stand together at such a circumstance, then um, I don't know what to say. We're never going to stand together. <laughs> Um, uh, I want to return. 
Let me play another little bit here. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, okay, we can talk about it. He has been a little disappointed. Canada's, listen, Canada doesn't have such a major role on the world stage, or it's decreased a lot, but that's a whole other discussion in recent years. But uh, there are a lot of strong supporters here. But you're right, the, I mean, we're, obviously, it's not Harper anymore. Those who know the Harper years of, uh, you know, is it more pro-Israel than uh, the Israeli government, you know, Harper. But uh, <laughs> Trudeau's been, I, 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 he could be worse. Let's say it's not that many of the European countries are a lot worse than in Canada. But anyways, but it's good we went and then back from the rally. So, uh, you know, we're talking about Germany, German history. Germany is strong. It's stronger than America. Germany, Czech Republic, Hungary, but Germany, whether they're you know the, they have... right, stronger than America in their support for the Jewish state of Israel. So you've got two Zionist rabbis talking here. To do for everything. But the fact of the matter is Germany, they shut down all these pro Hamas groups that are running wild in our country and in your country. Uh, there's no freedom. There's no First Amendment in Germany. So, uh, uh, you know, there's a big, much bigger danger, though. They're taking like a million of the people from uh, from uh, the Middle East. And uh, we know by the po- just by the polls, we know that the majority, if not the overwhelming majority, are terribly anti-Israel and many, most of them are anti-Semitic. So Germany has its hands full, you know, if it wants to stop all the hate speech. But we have to give, uh, you know, Hakar Satov to uh, uh, what they're doing there now to try to shut. I, I think this is so important. All right. This is principles versus interests. I would expect that as a principle, Mark Shapiro is generally a free speech kind of guy. So I don't believe that he, if so facto, supports hate speech legislation. But he recognizes that Germany doesn't have a First Amendment, that Germany does have very strict hate speech laws. And even though I would suspect that philosophically he does not support hate speech laws, he recognizes that at this time and place, he sees it as good for Israel and good for the Jews that Germany has so many free speech restrictions. So I don't think this means that Philosophically, he's for promoting hate speech legislation, but he recognizes the benefits of something that's already there. And so it's good to have principles, right, to stand for things such as free speech. But sometimes it's even more important to be aware of and to stand up for your interests. And often your interests are going to contradict your principles. So you can be a free speech pro-Zionist Jew who does not like hate speech legislation, but you can simultaneously hold to that philosophy, but recognize that the application of hate speech laws is reducing the public expression of anti-Israel, anti-Jewish sentiment in Israel. Just like I had a girlfriend who was very much a free market economist, but her job was for a group that depended 100% on getting state subsidies. And so you can't change the world. And you can have a certain philosophy about the world, and you can be for free speech and for the free market. At the same time, the only job that you may get, right, is for something that lobbies for the very opposite of what you stand for. And whether you take that job or not, it's not going to change in all likelihood the amount of, you know, state subsidies that are doled out. So sometimes I think interests should trump your philosophy. And sometimes your philosophy should trump your interests. Probably in general, looking out for your interests are more important, meaning your interests, meaning your group's interests, probably is more important than looking out for your philosophy. Sound. Yeah, yeah, lots to talk about. It was nice. I was talking to a, uh, a Persian, uh, a Persian, you know, an Iranian, an Iranian dissident. One of them, you know, spoke at the rally. I think they had something like that in Washington too, somebody from Iran. She says her family's there. They're all afraid. Most Iranians want the government overthrown, which I don't think is a surprise. I don't know. She- I don't think that's true. All right. Uh, Iran has had a religious state since the overthrow of the Shah, and the forces 
that uh, support a religious state are simply more effective and more competent than those that oppose them. Now, I'm not at all sure it's true that most Iranians want an end to its to the theocracy that runs Iran. She knows also exactly, but all her family in Iran, they all want, uh, they all hate the government. But uh, that's the problem. If we could get rid of the... In all likelihood, that's because it's a Jewish family that uh, prefers a secular state. Right? Jews, right, in non-Jewish countries are generally going to prefer a secular state because they will feel more comfortable there. Now, that's not necessarily in alignment with what's for the good of the majority. The Iranian government, I think the world will be a totally different place. But yes, it will. And the Iran- right. The more Christian America gets, right, the more uncomfortable Jews will become. Though, on another hand, with certain extremes of secularism, that can create uh, problems, particularly for religious Jews. But in general, uh, Jews feel more comfortable in a secular state than in a non-Jewish religious state. Iran is the real problem people. here. Iran is Iran- so, Yeah, Mark just twice said Iranians are good people. This is absurd to say that you know any group is just uh, good people. Like Iranians developed uh, as a people under certain evolutionary selection pressures, and they developed to have, have traits that enabled them to survive certain pressures, just like uh, Ashkenazi Jews and Australian Aborigines. Australian Aborigines have a larger part of their brain that has to do with vision, and that makes them really good at tracking. Uh, Ashkenazi Jews evolved in in Europe to to reproduce, right, and to have more children if they were particularly effective in white collar professions. So that the more intelligent Ashkenazi Jews reproduce more than less intelligent Ashkenazi Jews, and so this developed the Ashkenazi Jewish people to have particularly high IQs. So all groups, you know, evolve under varying evolutionary pressures, and they develop traits that are most compatible with survival and reproduction in certain circumstances. So I I think it's just silly to talk about Iranians or Aborigines or any group being good or bad. Each group simply evolved to develop and reproduce within particular circumstances. Iranian people are good people. If you had an election, things would be different. The truth is, and the Western media doesn't want to acknowledge it, the politicians don't acknowledge it. If you had an election now in the West Bank, Hamas would win. Of course. They did a poll. And uh, good Challenge from autistic merit. Aren't the forces restricting kosher animal slaughter and circumcision today predominantly secular? Yes. So religious Jews have reasons to fear an increasingly secular society. Most Jews are not orthodox, and uh, most Jews don't feel any particular devotion to eating kosher food, and many don't even care that much about circumcision. 85% of uh, people in the West Bank supported October 7th. It's like 68% in Gaza. So people have to recognize what we're dealing with here. It's not, uh, it's a very, it's an intractable situation here because uh, the the, the population as a whole is is dead set against Israel. Well, I think the the Arab Israelis are not. The Arab Israelis, I think, are quite supportive of Israel because they know. Anyways, it's a... I don't know they you know, when they had these deals, when they were working on this program to uh, with Omer, to, uh, they would have the border swaps. There were some Arab towns that they were going to swap and for Jewish things, and the Arabs right. started protesting. Of course. They, they don't they want to be in the house. They're, 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 it's forget economically. They're, they would drop, you know, like 100%. And also, they don't want to live under the Palestinian Authority. Right. So, uh, they have more freedom in Israel than they would under any Arab country, that's for sure. Yeah. Anyways, okay, all right, what can I say? But thank- yeah, so modern Orthodox Jews tend to be highly Zionist. Uh, the grandparents. Okay, everyone, it is November 20th, uh, 2023, and... Uh... Whoops, played that already. Eliminate that.
place called Yathrib. We know it now as Medina. So the question the is, Judaism why was there such opposition to Muhammad? Uh, was there such a connection to the, the pagan religions that were practiced then? So there's an economic argument that's been made. You might want to call it a Marxist argument that the merchants, they made their living. Remember, there was a pilgrimage to uh, Mecca and they made their living from this. And there was a fear that if Muhammad would be successful in his, his monotheistic idea and he'd purge uh, uh, the uh, city of all its uh, paganism, that that would be the end of the pilgrimage and they would be driven to bankruptcy. But uh, that's not what happened. Uh, he does return to Mecca and he does purge it of all the idolatry, but he kept the pilgrimage. And uh, according to Islam, uh, Abraham built the Kaaba and the pilgrimage begins with him. Uh, not surprisingly, as time goes on, the position solidified among the Jewish scholars that Islam was not Abu Dazara, is not Abu Dazara, and this is to be expected, and I think it's uh, there's no way around it. Uh, so Abu Dazara means foreign worship. That's the literal meaning. It's often used colloquially to refer to idolatry. Once you understand Islam's true character, right, we're going to see in a minute what the Rambam has to say about this issue. But before coming to this, let me tell you what the Rambam says, at, uh, and I'll get to all the comments um, um, in the chat as well, including the one about throwing the stones. Um, before coming to this, let me quote what the Rambam says right at the end of the Mishnah Torah about Christianity and Islam, because he actually speaks about their role and significance in the world. And he says that although Islam and Christianity are an error, they have value in that they prepare the world to accept the true religion, namely Judaism. Now, whether that means convert or whether that means uh, become Noahides is a dispute in that matter. Uh, basically, in the Rambam's conception, the, the, the quote, civilized world, doesn't seem he knew much about what's going on in, in China, but the so-called civilized world, as he knows it, is divided between um, you know, Christendom and Islam, and um, Christianity has certain advantages. They recognize uh, the idea of revelation, testament. Of course, their God idea is problematic. Uh, the Islamic world, uh, they have, their theology is pure. So each one of these religions is has taken steps so that when the Messiah comes and the true truth is revealed, Christianity simply has to reject its false idea of God and the notion of a New Testament, and uh, they will then see the truth. And Islam already is theologically pure. Uh, you know, if they already have moved in the direction of the, the ultimate truth, and that for him is steps in the direction of the Messianic era. So although Christianity and Islam um, are steps, are, are wrong, obviously, they're steps in a positive direction. It's part of the Rambam's uh, conception of history. In fact, although um, Christianity is certainly worse in a theological sense because their God idea is impure, Ramam sees it as real Avodazara, their notion of God. There's actually, they have an advantage or two over Christianity, over Islam, because uh, we're not allowed to teach non-Jews Torah, but the Ramam says you can teach it to Christians, because at least they share our, our holy text, at least the first one, uh, and we can point out uh, their errors. But that doesn't mean that Christianity is regarded as better for, than Islam. On the contrary, for the Rambam, theology is the most important, so Islam is on a higher uh, on a higher level. We can't teach it to the Muslims, because as I mentioned, they think that we've corrupted uh, uh, the Torah text. Uh, he was. Uh, the Rambam doesn't pay him much regard, but he must have been a significant personality because when he issued his ruling, it threw the, the Moroccan community into a quandary. What he ruled is that all Jews living now under the Almohad reign, who were living outwardly as Muslims and inwardly as Jewish, that they were uh, living as apostates. Basically, he was giving the psaq that was given to the Jews in Christian Europe and the community. Whether the Rambam was also living like this, uh, that's uh, we don't have time to get into it now, but it's not a halakh problem because as we'll see what the Rambam says. So the people, they write to the Rambam and they say, is it true? Are we all basically, do we all have the status of apostates? And the Rambam writes this marvelous letter explaining to them that although they, actually he said, we, we need to leave here as soon as possible because you can't live in a place where you cannot worship Judaism openly. There's no idolatry in living out with we as a Muslim and to save your life. And it is permitted uh, because all you're doing is lying. You're saying that we accept uh, Muhammad as the prophet. You're allowed to lie to save your life. Um, so we see there's a big difference between the Jewish approach to living under Christian rule 
and being a crypto Jew there versus being a crypto Jew under Muslim rule. The Ramam says, you, you go to the mosque, uh, we bow down, we worship God, they worship God. There's no Masa Avodazara. Now the Rambam, I mean, this shows you his honesty because he hated Islam. And yet when he was asked about Halakha, he had to give the proper ruling and he had to defend the truth. Why do I say he hated Islam? Because he has another letter called the letter to Yemen. Jews were being persecuted in Yemen, forced apostasy, there was a messianic pretender, there was all sorts of problems going on in Yemen. And in this letter, in which he writes to encourage them, he says that the Muslims have persecuted the Jews and hated the Jews more than anyone else. Now, it's an interesting comment because it's actually not true. It wasn't true when the Ramam said it, and it certainly wasn't true in the years afterwards. I'm assuming at this time, at, at this time, the Ramam didn't know what it was like to actually live uh, under Christian rule, although um, make no mistake about it, the Jewish life under Islam was never a picnic. And uh, there's the rule of the dhimmi, and um, sometimes it wasn't as harsh as it is explicitly as it should be according to the rules, but Jews always lived as second-class uh, citizens. In fact, some of the worst uh, you know, enforcement of this, the most difficult uh, problems for Jews in the Muslim world actually was in Morocco. Ironically, that today things are, uh, at least before October 7th, things uh, uh, were much better. But um, what you didn't have, you had some exceptions, but generally you didn't have... Uh, uh, you didn't have massacres, you didn't have uh, forced uh, conversions, you didn't have all the issues you had in the Christian world. So although we can remove from the table this notion that it was all hunky-dory, one long golden age, even the golden age of Spain wasn't as golden as people make it out to be, I think it's fair to say that the Jews, they basically lived, yes, they lived as second-class citizens, but uh, they had autonomy, they generally had protection, um, they were allowed to run their own show, so it was a better obviously the Amahads were a separate uh, circumstance, but it was a better existence than Jews had it in the, um, in the Christian world. Now, with the time I've left, I just didn't take five minutes, I guess, some of the questions or comments. So sometimes, like, life under Islam was better for Jews, and other times life under uh, Christianity was better. Sometimes life under communism was better than certainly life under Nazism. Overall, you know, far more Jews got slaughtered in Christian countries than in Muslim countries. Let me just speak about some practical halakhic matters uh, that uh, come up, obviously. Yeah. So halakhic comes from the word halakha, which refers to Jewish law. So Jewish law is the way that uh, Judaism and the Jewish tradition make you know, its principles and ideals and ethics uh, concrete. I always say uh, the truism, ask your local rabbi. In fact, I always say ask your local rabbi. I see online people often say ask your local orthodox rabbi. So maybe there's a suffix, which rabbi you should ask. But um, okay, what about uh, Jews entering a mosque? Well, since uh, Islam is not idolatrous, uh, there should be no problem for a Jew to enter a mosque. And although, uh, as far as I can tell, none of the early posts can discuss this question, the prevailing dominant opinion among recent Allah authorities is that it's absolutely uh, permissible. Uh, when we go on our trip, we don't go to any churches on our trips. Uh, by the way, check your emails. Our, our trips uh, this summer will be announced very soon. But when we go, for instance, to Morocco, we go to the great mosque in um, in Casablanca. So last year we were there together with Erica Brown. She brought a whole group from YU. Of course, they also go to the mosque. And... Uh, because what is a mosque? A mosque is just a room where they pray to God. We do not go to the um, uh, any churches um, people want to. They can go on their own, but we don't as a group because the I wouldn't say the unanimous, but the, the generally accepted opinion is not to go. Um, look, Maras and Machpela, the section where Yitzchak is, I don't think it's open most of the year, but that's an active mosque. Um, and um, I think even um, the section of Avraham is a, a mosque as well. Uh, uh, but certainly the section of Yitzchak is an active uh, mosque. And... Um, um, and, and I've never heard anyone say, you know, before Baruch Goldstein, you can go anytime. Uh, uh, various schools, I know the school. So Baruch Goldstein went to a mosque. He was an American uh, Zionist settler in Israel who went to a mosque and slaughtered over 30 Muslims at prayer. 
My kids went to the Kushner school. I mean, they had the Jewish Muslim exchange. You go, you visit a mosque. As far as I know, that's the standard view. Rav Yitzchak Hanan Specter, right? It's a Hanan, has a tube actually about this in which he talks about converting a mosque to a shul. And he describes there's no issue here. There's no, uh, you don't need what they call a bitul. Like when you buy a church, it has to be bitul because it's a kosher, um, it's a kosher building. Uh, Jews, Non-Jews are worshiping God in a kosher fashion. In fact, Rav Avati Yosef says that you can even daven in a mosque. And they're always tefillos, as I said, in the Mara Samach Peva. Rav Shomu Zamanabak daven there. Uh, why, why is this an issue? You might say it's it's never going to happen. It will it can happen in an airport. And uh, um, so the standard halakhic opinion is that uh, you can uh, daven. Now, uh, you might not want to, and uh, they might create problems for you. That's, uh, but uh, certainly halakhically, um, it's acceptable. We know that in a sabbatical year, uh, this comes up as well. According to the halakha, this is... Yeah, you try to daven at the Dome of the Rock, right? It's probably not going to go over well. A mission, actually, you can't sell land in the land of Israel to a non-Jew. Um, why not? Uh, and uh, this is how Jews often build up Jewish communities: is that if they they leave the community, they don't sell their their property to a non-Jew. So it allows for a concentration of Jews. Um, well, uh, the reason given, you'll find this already early on, is that um, we can't sell land because the non-Jew will bring his idolatry into the land of Israel. We don't want idolatry in the land of Israel. Well, if that's the reason, the implication is. So another way of understanding this is that the stranger will bring a different hero system into our midst, and when people have to encounter different hero systems, it increases the likelihood that they will come to understand their own hero system as having significant, if not complete, fictional quality. That it was just something that uh, they, they fell into because they took cues from their community. So that's the danger of the stranger. Stranger danger, because the stranger has a different hero system, and that might awaken you to consider that your own hero system, your own religion, your own sense of what is right and wrong, you may come to understand as based on fiction. Is that uh, there's no issue when it comes to Muslims because Muslims um, are not idolaters. And uh, this is actually the basis behind a number of uh, the, those who permit during the sabbatical year of selling the land. They sell the land. Okay, I want to play a little bit more here from Shapiro. Therefore, that every individual and even groups of individual who state these matters, which are definitely minos and apicorsos, namely, let's say, denial. Meaning heresy. Of Mashiach, denial of Machus based David. Does this mean that all the people who advocate these ideas are themselves to be regarded as minim? Hirsch assumes that if you have a community whose leaders have. That makes the community as a whole a community of heretics and we can have no connection to them. What Bumberger is going to say is that, yes, their ideas are heresy, but does that mean that every single one of these people in the community are, are... Right, so different Orthodox rabbis have had different perspectives of how you deal with Jews who aren't Orthodox. And so some Orthodox rabbis hold that, uh, look, the, these are people who are essentially you know, believing in idolatry. You, you should have you know, absolute minimum to do with them. And then other Orthodox rabbis who welcome a, a more open approach, right? You're not going to assimilate their views and their practices, but uh, you should have more engagement with non-Orthodox Jews. Themselves to be regarded as no different than heretics of old, when these people don't know any better. And we're going to get into the great dispute, the famous dispute of the Rambam and Raivot, about fear of a Shogig. And the Bomberger's position, just to anticipate, is going to be that you cannot judge a non-Orthodox Jew and regard them as an evil heretic just based on what they believe, because we have to know why they believe it. For all we know, these are people who were brought up with these ideas, and they don't know any better, and they're not trying to destroy Judaism. And especially when you see that they're willing to bend over backwards to help the Orthodox 
can we regard their community as a community of heretics? In other words, we'll have to distinguish between heresy and heretics. So that's going to be a very important point, a point which I think many people will find uh, valuable because it continues in our day and uh, it's an old dispute uh, and we will pick up with that uh, next class uh, uh, next week, God willing. But let me get to uh, the questions and comments. This very, very important dispute. Um, Someone privately texted me there of Aaron Feldman released an interesting two-page letter today about his position on the rally. Yes, I read it. And uh, listen, we, I respect for all Gadol Yisrael, but that letter, I find it... Uh, okay, Gadole Yisrael are Haredi Jews, meaning the most traditional, most religious segment of uh, Judaism. And he's, Mark is talking here about the pro-Israel rally held in Washington, D.C. a month or two ago. I find it doesn't say anything uh, to me. He's upset that, that he can't send his people there because uh, they sing Hatikva and the president of Israel speaks. Uh, it's a rally for Israel, for heaven's sakes. So if you don't like Hatikva because they think it's too secular, you can stand there and uh, and be quiet while everyone else does. You have to uh, you have to judge what's uh, the Ikar and what's Tafel. And if the president of the state of Israel should not address the the Aguda deputies in Israel stand for the Hatikva, that they we're supposed to have a rally and the president of the state of Israel is not welcome. He's the representative of the state of Israel, the ambassador. ambassador. How can you even have such a concept that you're going to say that that makes an apostle rally? That doesn't make any sense. Look, the Heredium was simply looking for the most palatable reasons to excuse why they they weren't going to show up to this this rally. So if it wasn't this reason, they'd find find another. Now, people usually don't tell you the real reasons they do things, the real reasons they can't join with you in some cause that's vitally important to you, but might be you know anathema to someone else. Sense to me, and uh, and then of the other issue, Pastor Hagee. To have a Christian uh, preacher speak. Pastor Hagee has thousands and thousands of followers. This battle can only be won with the, with the support of the Christian community, the evangelical community. Pastor Hagee is not a missionary. He doesn't try to, yes, he believes at the end of days, the Jews will recognize Jesus. Hey, and you know what? I got news for people. We believe at the end of days that Pastor Hagee will recognize that Jesus is not the Messiah. We say it in Alenu. So uh, as long as we can push that argument off for the eschatological future, and we don't, it's not a contemporary issue, then, um, then what's the problem? This is a man who uh, is able to bring assistance to the state of Israel, to the people of Israel. And if the, the, the people running this event thought that this would be valuable, that non-Jews across the, the country can see this, especially we know with younger evangelicals are turning against Israel, how can this be wrong? Are we afraid that someone's going to be, someone from the Neri Yeshiva is going to be uh, influenced by the missionaries? I, I don't I don't understand it. I don't, uh, who's the, the governor from, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, her father, uh, she was this press secretary for Trump. Now she's the governor. Sarah Huckabee. Um, and he was also a, uh, a senator, but uh, he was a preacher. Huckabee. I mean, you can have Huckabee. Huckabee, yeah. So I, I, this, I, I don't understand it. Not, it's just not, as Rabbi Bellarmine said, it's just not my world. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't see how, um, how listening to a, a non... It's painful understanding a different point of view on something that is vital to your hero system. Jewish clergymen talk about how important it is for America to support the state of Israel. I don't see... Right. The, the more passionate, the more emotionally attached you are about something, right, the more difficult it is, by definition, to be dispassionate and to have empathy for contrary points of view. How that's... Uh, I just don't... So that's why I have overwhelmingly reacted to the events of October 7 from an analytical and dispassionate perspective, because I don't like getting emotionally flooded. I, I t at times, I just get flooded with empathy and it's immobilizing. I don't like how that feels. So I, I generally react to life in a dispassionate and analytical fashion. I want to maximize my ability to understand different points of view 
rather than to maximize my ability to get emotional about you know my my favorite things because i got a, a number of emails from people including from Moshe from lakewood and Moshe from spring valley about uh, actually first Moshe from lakewood uh, about the nitsiv um remember the nitsiv i quoted the nitsiv um where he said about publishing the Wurzberger Rov's uh, Shuvot, he says that an individual, once they write the Shuvot, that if I write the Shuvot, I don't have the uh, the right to destroy them. Um, if I want to destroy them completely, I, I can... Um, yeah, okay, we, we, we spoke about that. So uh, Moshe points out that this goes against many examples that we have of uh, manuscripts that were uh, not published. He said there's a famous story of the Chidusha Harim, who had a manuscript on Choshed Mishpat, but the Kutzker told him to burn it. We have many, many examples of this. I have to say that in the Sif's position, I do not consider it mainstream at all. Right. So the more closely integrated you are with other people, the more incentive you will find to not do things that will upset them. So the less freedom you'll experience. Because um, I think the mainstream position throughout history is, if I write a safer, I don't have to publish a safer. Why? Well, who says I have to publish a safer? It's my safer. I can do what I want with it. Uh, um, I um, I haven't really heard anyone who disagrees with this, other than it's if uh, the Briskers didn't publish their writings. I mean, that's my uh, if it's my Torah, I can decide whether it's worthy of being published or not. Then it's if only said to the children. That despite the fact that your father didn't want to write it, publish it, you have the right to publish it, that I would understand because the, the father is, is modest. He doesn't want to take responsibility, but we don't need to. Right. So if I was more integrated into the Orthodox Jewish community, or if I was particularly concerned about my, my children getting a, a good match for marriage or getting into certain Jewish day schools, I, I would not be able to do this kind of show, right? I've created a life where I have you know, pretty close to a maximum of freedom while holding on to a significant amount of community. But the more community and interconnection you have with other people, the, the less freedom. Except that we know that he was a good Obi-Zero, and therefore we can publish it. But the idea that uh, even the author himself doesn't have the right to publish it, uh, that to me, I find a pretty extreme position. And uh, um, <laughs> the author didn't feel it's 100%. Right. So rights come from whatever your community or tribe or nation decides to extend to you. And so the more status you have, right? The more responsibility you have, the more power you have, in some sense, the, the less freedom of, no, in any sense, the less freedom of expression you have. Correct. Uh, so that's the first thing. This right. I, I got a maximum uh, freedom of expression because I don't have status. No, I don't have power. I, I'm not in, you know, positions of, you know, great authority. And so I have pretty much a maximum of free expression. Second thing though I want to note is that I mentioned, you know, that the Nitsif compares to Truma. When we had a base amygdash, Truma couldn't be destroyed. It had to be given to a Kohen, but you can choose which Kohen you give it to. So uh, I said it's also like tells us that he said to the people who come to they come came to Würzburg, they asked him to come to Frankfurt. He says, I can't come there. What am I? He they asked him to make a decision. He said, How can I make a decision? I don't know. Well, I don't know the situation. So they say, Well, then come come to us. And at first he doesn't want to, but they say, you know, we came all the way to Würzburg. It's not such an easy trip in those days. Uh, so he says, I agreed to come. But I, and he says that when I go there, of course, I'm going to speak to the other side. And when I speak to the other side, I get a full understanding. Maybe who knows what I'm going to decide. So uh, I see why Bomberger uh, was upset with this language. Now, it's not, that's not all that uh, Hirsch says. Because in Hirsch's reply to Bomberger's uh, uh, letter, he goes further. He says that uh, when it comes to Torim Der Heretz, that's an educational principle. They're fine. Maybe you, Bomberger, don't share. But um, 
Torah and Derech Eretz is also related to the concept of Derech Eretz. Um, Derech Eretz in this context means Western knowledge. And uh, Torah and Derech Eretz, he says, has nothing to do with the... So Torah, meaning the, the Jewish tradition. So trying to combine the, the best of the Jewish tradition with the best of Western literature. Concept of Derech Eretz. Derech Eretz. Torah and Derech Eretz means Torah and Western civilization. Derech Eretz, we know what Derech Eretz means. And he says, how you, Rabbi Baumgart, could commit a blatant violation of the concept of Derech Eretz. Here she's accusing Rabbi Baumgart of not having basic Derech Eretz. I mean, so basic Derech Eretz without, in a, in a different context, simply means being kind, being a, a good person. Well, I, 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 there's stuff I'm not reading. I just want to tell you how impressed I am that the Hersheyan Society would translate this. Because from our perspective, um, so what you have going on here is an absolutely vicious debate between rabbis. So when I, I converted to Judaism, I had this very idealistic conception of rabbis and of Jews and of Judaism because that met my intense emotional needs at that time in my 20s to kind of throw away my, the life that I had and to try to create a new life and to be reborn in, in the light of my idealistic conceptions of Jews, Judaism, and rabbis. Then as I was able to drop my unnecessary, magical views of Jews, Judaism, and rabbis and come to a more realistic understanding, it was because I had released my need to be right, to be you know, aligned with the number one religion that's just superior to all other ways of life, all other religions. So as I started being able to stand on my own two feet, I was increasingly able to let go of magical thinking and recognize that rabbis are just as susceptible to ego to wanting to assert themselves just as susceptible to ordinary human temptations as any other group, all right? You shouldn't expect rabbis to behave more ethically than any other group with a similar IQ level. 50 years later, it's, it's tough to read this because these are Godolius Yisrael, and they're really, uh, the way they're arguing with each other, I know we have this expression that the, the Torah, Torah disputes, you know, the, 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 the fervor, the uh, excitement. People say things sometimes. The Rivet says things about the Rambam. But these were people who had a good relationship before that. And these were... So the funniest statement in the Sidur, the Jewish prayer book, is that Torah scholars increase peace in the world because Torah scholars tend to argue very passionately with each other and often in not very nice ways because the more important something is to you, all right, the more likely you will be to get personal and to hurt those who don't share, right, who, who differ with that which you find sacred. Were not private letters. These were letters for the entire world to see. And, uh, you know, what Bomberger says and what Hirsch says back and forth, it, it, it's not high ground, in my opinion. Uh, I don't know. What, what am I going to tell you? It's uh, it's here, though. Um, but this point about Derek Harris is of interest, because I once gave a talk. I gave a talk at the Shul Kadima. Uh, actually, uh, not, uh, I just identified the shul, so I'm not going to go. All right, I already played that. Let me find another. Ever, uh, uh, I'm not sure really what the, the mechanism is, but there have been cases where rabbis have given smicha and then the person uh, said things or behaved in an inappropriate way. So they said that my smicha is batel mavutal. It's not uh, valid. And I guess an orthodox. So smicha means, means uh, rabbinic ordination. Oh my God. I shouldn't say that because uh, it depends. If, if, if someone got smicha, let's say, from a Satmar rabbi, and then he became a Zionist, Rahman Witzlan, and then the Satmar rabbi announced that I'm uh, being Mavato his smicha. I don't think a modern Orthodox synagogue would care. You know, it all depends on why he's being uh, Mavato the smicha. By the way, in terms of Satmar, something amazing came out this week. There was a guy in Satmar, he, he converted, and he converted to Satmar. 
believe it or not. And he's a complete guy. He becomes Satmar, and he, he picks up all the lingo. I mean, he has the Yiddish accent. It's amazing. And after five years in Satmar, he was married also. He left it all and reverted to his to Christianity. His, and, and he did an interview with Zev Brenner last week, the Zev Brenner Show. And it, it's just it's an amazing story. First of all, I just love listening to this non-Jewish guy. I guess he's Jewish. He's Jewish. And his Yiddish accent, how he picked it up. And uh, I mean, sat and learned in Satmar for years. And then you have all these guys calling up on the show saying he's going to get him and everything. And he says, that doesn't matter to me because I don't believe it anymore. But uh, so that's interesting about Satmar. But so that's the Maram Shik. Um, and of course, Bomberger didn't uh, retract his uh, position. Now, um, because of um, uh, the Maram Shik, because of the agreement with the um, the, the general community, one of the things they said they would do for the Orthodox is create a synagogue, build a brand new synagogue, and they build a mikvah, all the things they're going to do. And therefore, uh, they appointed a rabbi. And this rabbi, his name was uh, Rav Mordechai Horovitz, or Marcus Horovitz. Marcus, by the way, is a non-Jewish name. That's not a shame hole. Now, Frankfurt was a big community. After Berlin, Frankfurt is the big community. And there's not just uh, German Jews there, there's uh, Jews from Eastern Europe. And as I mentioned, the Jews from Eastern Europe, they came from towns which didn't have so Jews from Eastern Europe tended to be much more traditional, much more religious, much more Torah observant, Torah knowledgeable. Uh, Jews from Germany to Western Europe tend to have much more positive opinions of the non-Jews, much more interaction with the non-Jews, and to be less Torah knowledgeable and less Torah observant. Separatism. So they had no problem. Most of the East European Jews joined the general uh, uh, Frankfurt community, and that's how things remained until the end of the German Orthodoxy, as we'll see. But... Um, Okay, so Mark got his PhD from Harvard, so here he weighs in on controversies with regard to Harvard University. Oh, an expert in uh, German Orthodoxy. Uh, many, many years ago, I read your master's dissertation. I was one of the readers. Translation of Rav David Svi Hoffman's uh, critique of uh, Wellhausen's uh, uh, work on uh, uh, biblical criticism. Uh, so uh, we hope one day that this will appear in print in publication. Uh, I have a copy of it, but I know many pe people have asked me many times over the years, is there any translation of it? And I say there's a Hebrew translation, and but the English translation is not widely available. So someone privately said that uh, Rabbi Riskin revoked the smicha of uh, someone. I can mention the name because he's a known maneuver. Uh, Mordechai Gaffney, Mark Winiers. I mean, uh, this is not one guy, a guy who made one mistake or two mistakes. This is a guy... Uh, there's always gullible people, especially in this this crowd of the spiritual seekers, uh, uh, the people who put uh, spirituality, those types. Uh, you can, uh, you can. Uh... Right. That, that That's me. All right. When my life fell apart in my 20s. All right. I was desperate for meaning, given that I could no longer work. I could no longer study. I could no longer accomplish anything. I was in bed, bedridden by approximately six years of chronic fatigue syndrome. So everything that gave meaning and purpose to my life had fallen apart. So I became desperate for meaning. I wanted to, wanted someone who could lay a blanket of meaning over the world so that even though I couldn't accomplish anything anymore, even though my life had fallen apart, that I could still find meaning and purpose. And so people who are desperate, all right, people who are not connected to other people, people who are not moving ahead in their education or their profession or with their family or their community, Right, they're going to be desperate for meaning. And so I encountered Dennis Prager when I was desperate for meaning. And Dennis Prager could lay this, this wonderful tapestry of meaning over life. And it was just what I needed. And if I hadn't encountered that, I, I may not still be here. Right? Dennis Prager's presentation of, of Judaism and his, his worldview uh, lay this tapestry of meaning over the world that uh, spoke to me and gave me strength and purpose. So vulnerable people, exactly what Mark is talking about here, are going to look for a guru 
to give their you know, life purpose. Do crazy, terrible things uh, 10, 20 times. And they always, in that crowd, you can always find uh, gullible people. And then they, uh, they're shocked when a bad thing happens again. And, uh, and they're like, how could we know? How could we know? But uh, so Rabbi Riskin revoked his smicha. I don't know, but if, if from his standpoint, he was given it. Uh, can a university revoke, um, a university can't revoke your diploma unless they found that you uh, were engaged in, uh, let's say you plagiarized in the news recently at my alma mater. I tell you that if uh, she was in my class, I would not have failed her for the whole semester. That's my policy for real plagiarism. Her plagiarism was of the sort she would have got an F on the paper, but not a failure for the whole semester. But uh, it's... Uh... Talking about the affirmative action president of Harvard, who has a very undistinguished scholarly record, including you know bountiful examples of plagiarism, but yet uh, Harvard's still standing by her. Um, it's not a very uh, good time to be a Harvard alumnus. It's really embarrassing in so many ways. Uh, um, okay, question from the chat. 40, do you fear repercussions if you were to give too much time and respect to someone such as uh, History Speaks or to you know any anti-Zionist? It's a really bad idea in general for most people who are speaking publicly to publicly reveal and release their fears. So don't do it. Right, I tend to be way too vulnerable in in real life in live streaming, but uh, really bad idea to go public with your fears. But you can't revoke uh, just because someone adopts a different position. You can't revoke their diploma. But Smicha, I guess, is different. Thank you, Nissan, for providing the link to my, Professor Michael Gottlieb from NYU. Marty says that he has an unusual situation when his father has all passed away. He died in Toronto, and Marty was hospitalized in New York. Okay, let me put together great interview here, Richard Hanania. Talking with Amy Wax. And, you know, I'm, I know that this is not a popular or fun thing to talk about, but if we don't explain the paucity of blacks in certain positions that way, how are we going to explain it? You're saying we just have to get people used to it. They just have to accept it. They have to get used to it, that people from different groups are not going to be evenly distributed throughout all positions and all statuses. Well, how are we going to get them used to it? I mean, you go into any school any educational institution, K through 12 up, this is, it's pounded into kids' heads constantly. All groups are equal. All groups have the same latent ability, no. the same talents, the same interests. If society were right, they'd essentially be cookie cutter mirrors of each other. Of course, the irony here is if that's true, like why do we need diversity since every group, you know, is going to be the same? Um, it's, it's odd, but no one would ever, ever teach kids that groups are not the same. That just isn't done in 20, you know, 21st century America. So I don't know how yeah. you move the needle on that. So do you imagine a world, Amy, where in the, the, the I'm trying to picture in the Republican uh, primary debate, Nikki Haley, they ask her, what are you going to do about racial inequality? And she says, well, <laughs> the black IQ is one standard deviation below the white IQ. So we're never going to achieve equality. Is it, like exactly how do you want them to sort of approach this? Well, subject? that's. Okay. Uh, I won't play anymore because there's some great football games going on right now. But that was Amy Wax talking with Richard Hanania. Talk to you blokes. Later. Bye-bye.